Bow down, I am the emperor of dreams. I crown me with the million-coloured sun, of secret worlds incredible, and take their trailing skies for vestment when I saw. That's a quotation from The Apocalypse of Evil by Clark Ashton Smith, who I quoted in, in my last podcast. Um, if you hear a rumbling in the background, it's because I've got my charming little cat sitting on my lap. Um, he may make the occasional meow, um, but I'm just giving him some comfort because he's been quite ill, ill, uh, for the past day. He's been throwing up everywhere, um, but he's only got himself to blame because he was eating from, uh, the dog's food bowl. So he's, he's a big, fat, greedy thing, and he's only got himself to blame, but nevertheless, just giving him some attention because he seems quite depressed. Um, so in the last podcast I did, I... I was talking about um, my sort of unorthodox Christian opinions, um, specifically my sort of yearning for a sort of eternal or celestial marriage. I think this is something that not all Christians believe in because of Christ's comment that in the kingdom of heaven none shall be married uh, nor, nor given in marriage, um, and my response to that has been... I. Uh, I went over my explanation for that in the in the last episode. Um, I don't want to repeat myself too much, um, but basically, I I do hope for an eternal an eternal marriage. I think certain people of a romantic persuasion. Not for it. Not it's not for everyone. I don't think people. Some people don't place as much emphasis on romantic love on eros, um, but I think. I I very much do. I've always con- considered myself sort of the lover archetype. You know, there's there's a list of sort of male archetypes. There's like the hunter, the fighter, you know, the warrior, and then there's the lover. I've always considered myself the lover. Um, it's it's very important to me. I'm quite a sweet, sentimental person, um, and I think uh, Emmanuel Swedenborg, I think, put it this way. He sa- he says, you know, it's in it's in the heart of all true lovers of all people who who really love deeply and romantically um they they always imagine that in the next life they will they will love again as they did in, on this earth and they will love in the same way um that's that's all that's romance is one of those things in which we find the sort of seed of eternity you know the longing for eternity um so i i i would i don't know why we should expect that to end in this lifetime i think that's quite a heartbreaking thing um I do. I hope it goes on forever, because I do. I think heartbreak is quite an unnatural thing, and that it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Yeah, it's quite an unnatural thing. I don't. If I, you know, find my one true love, I don't want to ever have that heartbreak with them. I don't want ever. I want ever to be separated from them, whether in this life or the next. Because I'm. I'm not a very worldly person. I do take the claims of religion seriously and when, when when they say that the next life is going to be an eternity I take that very seriously and so I'm just having a lifetime of marriage and then an eternity of um celibacy doesn't seem very appealing to me um so uh, anyway I went over that in the last podcast I do yearn for sort of eternal marriage or celestial marriage not all not all 
Christians, um, not to, to give Christians some credit, Swedenborgians, um, the, the the followers of the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, who was a sort of 18th century uh, Christian mystic, they believe in eternal marriage, uh, as do the Mormons, um, they have their own concept of celestial marriage, um, and uh, people I forgot to mention in my last a denomination I forgot to mention in my last podcast with the Eastern Orthodox. I read an essay by an Eastern Orthodox person. I believe it was called The Glory of Marriage by David C. Ford. Um, and it was a very beautiful thing to read. It was very, I found it very affirming because it sort of uh, affirmed, you know, my sense of romance. Um, it, it, it described a very beautiful Christian you know, a beautiful, loving, romantic Christian marriage, and it describes it with such affirming, positive terms. Oftentimes in Christianity, it can be disparaging towards marriage, see it just as a necessary evil, you know. But I really, I really enjoyed this uh, essay by, I think it was David C. Ford, and I think it was called The Glory of Marriage. Um, and he, so he's Eastern Orthodox, and he was describing it from an Eastern Orthodox perspective, and he said that he made the claim that it's never really been considered the case in Eastern Orthodoxy that marriage is only for this lifetime. Um, unlike in the West, uh, in the in sometime in the West, the words "till death do us part" were added to to the marital vows. Um, I think in the eleven hundreds in in the Middle Ages, but they've never been the case in the East. Um, and Orthodoxy has always been very vague on the afterlife, which is probably for the best because otherwise you get into problems like this, like. I've had existential, you know, existential crises about thinking about this world where I'll be forced to be unmarried, to be celibate, you know. So it's probably for the best that they you know, they haven't fallen into that trap by making such assertions. Um, so the Eastern Orthodox, according to David C. Ford, are more open to the idea that, that uh, marriage is an eternal thing. And also, uh, if an Eastern Orthodox person marries again, whether it's after their spouse dies or they get divorced. The second marriage is more of a penitent thing. It's got an air of penitence towards it, showing that the first marriage was the true one, which will last into the next life. Um, so there, you can extrapolate that from Eastern Orthodoxy more than you can perhaps with Western Christianity. So I wanted to give Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox credit for that, because I, I rather like that. Um, I, don't, I don't, unlike... Yeah, so I think... I, I think I don't think they deny Christ. They don't deny Christ's comment that in heaven, none will be married or given in marriage. But I think they, I expect they interpret it as um, the reproductive element of marriage. Marriage, in the sense of its reproductive element, will end um, in this lifetime because there'll be no new humans created in the in the next world. Um, but monogamy, the monogamous relationships we. Uh, developed in this lifetime will continue for an eternity um, in blessed happiness. So this is just David C. Ford's opinion, um, but I think it's got some basis in Eastern Orthodoxy, so I just wanted to give them uh, credit for that. Um, I thought that was rather nice. Um, so yeah, Swedenborgians, uh, Mormons, um, and Eastern Orthodox tend to differ on this matter compared to other Christians. So I, w I, w I want to give them credit. Um, 
and of course other Christians from other denominations. You know, I think it's perfectly valid for an Orthodox, for any Christian to believe that, you know, while the reproductive element, marriage in its reproductive sense ceases in this lifetime, the monogamous relationships will continue into the next world. I think, I think most ordinary Christians who don't, uh, who don't know too much about theology expect that to be the case anyway. I think a lot of them would be quite, would be quite shocked if they woke up in the next life and they were turned into this sort of celibate, uh, being, um, uh, that had no sort of romantic attraction to their partner anymore. I think they'd be quite horrified by that. Um, so I think I think it's uh, it's quite. I think it must be quite a common view. I can't be the only one. It must be quite a common view among Christians of all stripes. Um, so I, but whatever. I went over this in the last podcast. If you want to hear my rant on this, you can listen to that. Um, but I've been reading recently the Esoteric Philosophy of Love and Marriage by the British occultist Dion Fortune. Um, and Dion Fortune was a 20th century uh, British occultist, um, but she had kind of a Christian leaning. She kind of synthesised sort of post... post-theosophy, post-Golden Dawn Western occultism with, uh, with Christianity. Um, so she's kind, of a, she's kind of a Christian mystic. Um, and so I've been reading her book, The Esoteric Philosophy of Love and Marriage, for sort of answers to my questions in that in this regard, you know, hoping that maybe she could say something on eternal... Maybe there could be some sort of hope for eternal marriage or something. Um, but so far I've been disappointed. I, she talks about reincarnation. She references, the, you know, The Secret Doctrine by uh, Madame Blavatsky, which, you know, this pseudoscientific sort of orientalist document. So I'm 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 not a great fan of uh, reincarnation, really. I don't know why sort of Western occultists and esotericists and sort of New Age spiritualists are so obsessed with it. It always has always seemed to me quite a horrid doctrine, really. Um, I feel quite heartbroken to be separated from all the you know loves that I've had in this life. You know, I find it horrifying in the same way I, I find horrifying the idea that we're just reborn in the next world with like none of our you know with like none of where all the relationships we forged in this life are sort of blurred and uh homogenized you know same same way i find that that you know i i yearn towards uh more of a sense of sort of eternal marriage eternal family you know i want to build on the relationships i built in this life rather than them to just be all blurred in the next life and we're all like sort of homogenized alien beings without genital parts or mouths or you know it seemed that seems quite horrifying to me and i find reincarnation the idea that i'll be taken from all my love all my loved ones and reborn as a complete stranger i find that quite terrifying as well so and as eastern religions admit that you know at least east in eastern religions properly understood uh they know that reincarnation is a bad thing and that the ultimate goal is to escape the karmic cycle so i think Western esotericists like the theosophists and you know theosophy as a religion has completely uh, disappeared really I mean I don't think anyone really takes it seriously anymore yeah I think Western esotericists kind of uh, romanticize reincarnation I, d I just don't know when it's not a good thing and in the Eastern religions wherein where reincarnation was a doctrine um, it's not perceived as being a good thing um, because if you live, you know, you would want to live multiple lives of pain and suffering, you know. 
Um, well, I guess maybe it has something to do. Maybe modern Westerners find it appealing because they, they believe that when they die it will just be oblivion. So from their point of view it gives them sort of a kind of eternal life on Earth. I guess maybe that's it. But for me, I've never been fond of it. So anyway, I haven't been impressed by this book so far. I haven't finished it. Um, so maybe it will have some good parts in. Um, but yeah, it incorporates reincarnation, it incorporates sort of uh, post-theosophical sort of golden dawn ideas um, and try and fuses them with Christianity. Um, so in Dion Fortune's conception, I think uh, the idea is uh, your soul is created and then it goes on a series of a cycle of reincarnations and then eventually it is it returns to the divine source. Um, uh, but I think it stumbles into the same trap as um, as uh, those Christians who believe that in the next world, you know, the world to come will be homogenized and sort of you know, worldly relationships will all be kind of blurred. You know, I think it sort of falls into this trap of imagining heaven as or the world to come as just one giant commune, celibate commune, you know. Um, so I, I haven't found it tremendously appealing. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll turn to page 38 to give you an idea of what I mean. Um, so here Dion Fortune is talking about, uh, I believe it's the, uh, the final plane of existence. So after this, so when the soul's returning back up to the divine source, this is where it ends up basically. So this is uh, basically heaven in her conception. All are one upon this plane, we are told, the relationship existing between each unit and the rest of the plane far exceeds in intimacy and completeness the highest that is ever attained by earthly lovers in their most ecstatic moments of union. This state is the permanent normal condition of the seventh plane, which may well be called the kingdom of heaven for it is a state of perfect love and perfect harmony. Human lovers fear that they may lose each other in what they conceive to be a vacant formless nirvana. On the contrary, the perfection of union, which has hitherto only been possible at rare moments between rare persons, there becomes the normal state of the whole creation. So, at least here Dion Fortune is, you know, trying to assuage... Uh, someone like me, a romantic person like me, who worries that in the next world, you know, uh, my my love will be lost, you know, will be blurred and lost, a vacant, formless nirvana. Um, but she doesn't help, she she falls into this trap, she, she, she doesn't help my, she doesn't assuage my fears by saying that, you know, this love will just exist between everyone, because that's, that's really precisely my problem. If it exists between everyone, then it's not special. It's it's homogenized. Um, I don't want Eros to be muddled up with agape. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, if yeah, it's I guess it's that fundamental principle. It's that this seems quite unpleasant to me. She she puts it in very sort of positive language, but I think that's quite unpleasant. Um, so am I to expect? I live a Hopefully I live this like long and happy life with my one true love um, and we're happily married and when I wake up in the next world I will want to continue that to eternity because any true lover wants to continue their love 
to eternity. You know, love calls out to eternity. Um, I wake up in the in the next world, in the world to come, and we our, our loves just be made irrelevant because we had we share this love which far exceeds our earthly our earthly love to with everyone, and we just become this big commune. So how is our relationship special after that? You know what I mean? How is our relationship special, you know? I would think, you know, for like, I could not see my earthly wife for like 500 years because she'll be, you know, she'll be like hanging out with other people and what does it matter because everyone loves everyone equally in this new world, you know what I mean? I don't, I, it's, this is precisely the reason I, you know, I find that really heartbreaking, like, I find that heartbreaking, like, our, really, our relationship would have ended in death, really, because in the next world, everyone has, if everyone has, everyone has the same love between each other, everyone loves each other equally, all relationships are made redundant, and they all cease to be special. I hope I'm coming across well, but I've always found that really horrifying, and you know, a terrifying idea, really, really nasty. I think love is only special because it's unique to each person, you know, and I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to lose that in the new world. It would be heartbreaking, you know. I, my, you know, I could, I could, wake up in the next world with my wife, and we would be happy together as we were on Earth, as we were before. Um, but then also, you know, I could spend like seven hundred years of eternity with someone completely different. She could spend five hundred years with someone completely different, uh, because the, all our loves are this equalized between everyone now. So, that makes. So what connection would we, we have, me and my earthly wife have anymore? Because love is... Everyone loves each other equally. I, I'm ho I'm trying to explain myself. Hopefully I'm getting across what I mean. But that just seems really horrific to me. Like, that seems heartbreaking. Like, for all intents and purposes, our relationship is over. It's, there's nothing special about it anymore. It exists between everyone. That's what I fear. When I say I want eternal marriage or eternal monogamy, I don't, you know, I don't... It's not a sexual thing, really. Like, I, I could do... I can... People think of... Especially, like, Christian prudes. They have this sneer at sort of romantic urges, saying, oh, it's just sex, you know. I think sex is a good thing, actually, and I think it's a very beautiful thing. But for me, it's... Romance is more important than sex. I'd rather live a life of romance than a life of sex, you know. It's much more important, you know. I'd rather... I think everyone agrees with this, you know. Or everyone everyone decent agrees with this, you know, they'd rather watch a romance movie than a porn film, you know? So I could, I could live without the sex, okay? I get if, but I just want that, I want that monogamous romance to continue, is all I'm saying, and I want it to be special and exclusive, um, because that's the only, that's the only way it can exist. Um, if it's, if everyone just has it with each other, then it just, what, what does it become? It's, water, it becomes waters, watered down, and that's, I just don't want that. I just I think that's quite heartbreaking. I don't want my I wouldn't want my love for someone to end in heaven like that. To end in this sort of homogenization in this in this, you know, this blurred blurred lines between everyone's loves, you know. And I don't think it just applies to romance, you know. I think it applies to sort of my my future son or my father. So say we're re resurrected in the world to come. And we're resurrected with these sort of perfect bodies, as many Christians believe we will be. Um, so we don't have any mouths, because we don't need to eat. And we don't have any genitals, because we don't need to procreate. 
and we're all the same age because we live forever because we're eternal then say I'm resurrected with my father and my son um, our relationship's going to be homogenized as well because we're all the same now you know like and if we're all the same do you get what I mean like So say I'm resurrected with my fa my earthly father and my earthly son. Our relationship is going to be homogenized as well because we're all exactly the same now. We're all the same age. We we don't have any sex anymore because there's no reproduction. We're all the same sex. Um, there's no family dynamic because you know there's no procreation. We're all just these like eternal beings without genitalia without sex without age there's no family dynamics because none of us begot begat anyone else you know um so the, the the relationship my relationship with my father you know my re wonderful relationship with my father that's just going to be or my mother that's just going to be made irrelevant again just as the relationship between me and my earthly wife is made re irrelevant the father my father son relationship with my relationship with my son is made irrelevant my relationship with my father is made irrelevant. It's all sort of homogenized into this communal agape. And don't get me wrong, agape sounds great. You know, that's wonderful. That's what Christianity is about. Everyone loving one another. But it just seems, I don't see why we have to sacrifice these other beautiful loves to have that. You know what I mean? That just seems like a, a homogenization. It doesn't seem nice. It doesn't seem good. It goes against all my instincts as a human being. Um... Christians will respond to this, they'll say, right, okay, you may not have a wife in the next world, you may not have a father and a son, uh, we may all be homogenized, these homogenous uh, alien beings, um, but it's okay because, you know, we'll be the bride of Christ, you know, Jesus will be your husband, effectively, uh, Jesus, the, you know, God the Father will be our father, so, you know, it replaces it, we've got God, instead of your earthly father, we've got God, instead of your earthly wife or your earthly husband, you've got Jesus, you know, it's the 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 marriage of Christ of God to His Church uh, replaces the earthly family, and I just think that just seems very alien to me, and my human instincts just rebel against that idea. I don't. That seems quite heartbreaking. That just makes all earthly relationships quite redundant. I feel. I feel the greatest proof for Christianity or the greatest proof for paradise is, as I think. Um, Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger pointed out um, the greatest proof of, of paradise and eternity is that in our in our loves for each other as human beings, whether my love for my father or my love for uh, my mother or my love for my wife or my, my son um, they all cry out for eternity I want to spend, if you really love someone you want to spend eternity with them as they are you want this love, whether it's fatherly love or romantic love, you want that to be eternal, I think. That's the greatest proof for paradise, for the truth of Christianity or the truth of um of 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 eternity. That the these loves they're just too powerful. They can, they can, they do not end in death. They're too powerful to end in death. Uh they they long for eternity. And I feel feel that this understanding which many Christians have of the next world sort of abnegates that um, in a very ugly way. Um you know, I, 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 I would love to be, you know, part of the, the bride or body of Christ, you know, part of the church united with God. I'd love for God the Father to be my my heavenly father, you know. I'm fine with that. That's great. That's brilliant. 
I'm I'm fine with like communal agape. That sounds wonderful and blessed, but I don't see why it should abnegate my earthly relationships. Really, why would you create me in this earth if you were just gonna in this world if you were just gonna completely redesign me in the in the next one? You know, it just seems very a heartbreaking process. You know, I know Jesus says this world is not your home, but I don't know. It just I it seems too alien, and it seems it's too too alien for me. Uh, my my fundamental instincts as a human, and I really do think humanity is sacred because it's this shared thing we're all born into. It goes against all my human instincts, and I just cannot accept this conception of the afterlife. Um, some Christians seem okay with it. For me, it just seems too alien and too heartbreaking, and it renders all earthly relationships null and void. Um, and I, I do think you find this concept... It's part of the reason why I don't think the biblical texts are completely divinely inspired because I do think you find this kind of conception of the afterlife scattered about um, and it's I just find it quite grotesque um, so I don't think all the Bible is divinely inspired I think there's some ideas that the early Christians had which were quite stoic they very much rejected earthly life and earthly pleasures quite kind of Gnostic and I find that quite unpleasant I think if Christianity is going to survive, I think all modern people will find it quite unpleasant. I understand in the old days life was more miserable, you know. Um, people did, There wasn't so much romance. People mar married for practicality, you know. Um, a lot of, you know, and people had very stern, stark relationships with their fathers, you know, um, or their children. But we've progressed beyond that, you know. Um, and so I, I don't think Christianity is going to survive if we let these horrible relics of early Christianity, of the repulsive beliefs of the Church Fathers, continue. Um, I think Christianity is going to have to change, and we've got to. We can't continue to accept the complete divine inspiration of the Bible. We have to try and find the inner truth in there. We've got to take the good of Christianity and discard the bad. I understand what I'm saying is quite shocking, but it's what I honestly believe. I mean, I do not want that paradise which some Christians, not all of them, but some describe. Um, I would rather go to hell. I honestly, I'd rather go to hell um, than have that. Just it's against, goes against all my instincts as principle and principles. So this is, uh, I'm getting very impassioned about this because this is what caused me to first break with Christianity. And this was what, this caused a huge existential crisis and really terrible event in my life um so i don't know that's that's why it's difficult for me to like sort of come to terms with religion is because or exoteric religion anyway um because i don't know i just it, how could something wholly good do something so hot terrible to my psyche you know i think a lot of people feel this with religion as well um I feel I feel there's some I feel there's some inner light in Christianity in the biblical texts in the story of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and that's what Christianity means to me um but there are some unpleasant bits which you know the positions on sex on romance on family life which I find unpleasant and I think Christianity should do away with if it's going to continue into the next uh, into the next millennium um, it went to this millennium. As I said, the Swedenborgians, the Mormons, and certain Eastern Orthodox, it's a little vague, as well as other Christians of 
other sorts uh, don't accept this sort of horrific, homogenized, alien conception of the afterlife. They do believe that earthly relationships will continue um, in the next world, and you know they'll be they'll even be glorified in the next world by sort of stretching out to eternity. Um, they'll be perfected in the next world, and so I don't want to br- brush Christianity with the same brush. Um, I, I I like Mormonism because it uh, not only does it believe in sort of eternal marriage. But it also believes in that uh, masculinity and femininity, and that gender has a spiritual significance. That it's not just, uh, you know, something caused by the fall of man or whatever. You know that we will all be united into one sort of, uh, you know, that we that uh, gender will be done away with in in the next world. They do believe that masculinity and femininity femininity have a spiritual significance, which is something I've always believed, sort of instinctively that. There's something uniquely beautiful about both masculinity and femininity, and that they were two sides of the. They, you know, they 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 both had something uniquely beautiful about each one, and that to sort of muddy them or blur them, sort of removed that unique beauty. You know, sort of tarred it. Um, uh, I've always felt, you know, I've always felt it my duty to sort of be a, a masculine man, not in a sort of a caricaturish way, like. You know, it's it's some parts of masculinity are just societal conventions, and they don't really matter. Like as a man, you can enjoy the color pink. You know, that's not essential to being masculine. But I think a certain authority, a certain uh, leadership, a certain courage is essential to masculinity. Whereas femininity, a certain brittleness, a sort of beautiful brittleness, is uh, is is part of femininity. Women can be powerful too, but it's in a different way, and that just makes it all the more beautiful so I think because I have kind of like an artist's eye I've always felt there was something very beautiful both about masculinity and femininity as sort of separate things they perfectly complement each other a society has to be perfectly 50-50 balanced you know between masculinity and femininity um, in order to be successful Um, and I sort of always felt that sort of by muddying them um, sort of blurring them making them sort of hermaphroditic um, it, called, it sort of made it them ugly. It removed that beauty. It may, it, or you get a sort of uh, weak men and butch women, and that's I don't find that aesthetically pleasing. Whether we're talking about physical appearance or in terms of personality, I want strong men and sort of well, strong women, but women are strong in a different way. You know what I mean? They have sort of a. I, I want beautiful men and, be- and beautiful women. Um, I, I beautiful masculinity, beautiful femininity. This is just something I felt instinctively, sort of spiritually, all my life. Um, and Mormonism affirms that, and it believes that uh, gender or sex or whatever you want to call it is eternal um, and lasts into the next world. And they also believe that reproduction lasts into the next world as well. There will be some kind of celestial sex going on. You know, I find that very. Uh, very affirming. I don't think there's anything wrong with sexuality at all. I think it's a good thing um, when properly uh, properly construed construed within a loving marriage. Um, and I think in the the Mormons take this to like its its most extreme length. They believe in a sort of eternal cycle of reproduction. So they believe that each human being will go off to uh, each human family will go off to become gods of their own cosmos. You know and uh, so they believe potentially that the god of our universe has a sort has a wife as well. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how far you want to take it. Um, I don't know if I believe in 
in that but i like the idea of basically that family the family links that we build in this world continue into the next i think that's a very wholesome belief and instinctively on an instinctive human level that feels right and that's all i can that's all you can say about religion at the end of the day does it feel right or wrong you know in your heart um in your heart of hearts does it feel right or wrong and that mormon conception just feels more right than the idea that we're all just going to become alien beings in the next world that just feels quite horrific um so if mormonism is a, in in that sense is a much healthier religion than certain branches of christianity it's a much more family focused religion it's very family focused it's very sort of they have wonderful traditions they've got a very big emphasis on sort of genealogy on doing sort of certain rites and ordinances for your ancestors so that they may be assured salvation um it's very they have sort of family fridays you know because they they believe that their family relationships whether father and son or man and wife will last forever and that just makes for better family relationships rather than the sort of mainline christian conception that it's just going to last it's just a result necessary evil resulting from the fall of man and it just lasts for this lifetime i find that quite horrid and it's doesn't make for a good family relationship i don't think um so yeah i'm not saying i'm a mormon but i have a respect for mormonism and that aspect of their theology um i think they've got that right and mormonism mormon culture is very family focused and sort of places a big focus on their ancestry um and they they have a focus on like the tribe of Israel that they're a part of, you know, as well. It's it's quite cool. I I quite like that. Um, so yeah, I think I think if you're lucky, that might just be my spiritual rant done. I get that out of the way first. I've got a, I'm very passionate about this sort of thing. I might let's see what else I got to talk about. I think there's there's another part of this book by Dion Fortune uh, which on the other hand did appeal to me I think it's a, it's a, her understanding of sex I think she does think sex is a um, is a good thing it's not it's not a necessary evil or anything like that so I do appreciate that about her I do appreciate that about her theology let me find it so yes this is what um Dion Fortune has to say about uh, sex. Some psychologists see in this well-known phenomenon another proof that sex, referring to a mortification of the flesh, some psychologists see in this well-known phenomenon another proof that sex is at the root of all things and regard the religious feelings as sublimations of the sexual ones, thinking that they have disposed once and for all of the spiritual life by approving its connection with the sexual life. The esotericists, however, the esotericist, however, views this phenomenon from a different standpoint. He believes both sets of activities to be the manifestation of one and the same force, a pure divine force of the utmost sacredness, and that the form which this force takes is determined by the machine through which it functions, so that should this force be run through the vehicle of the sixth plane body, it will manifest itself as spiritual fervor and dynamic power, and will act upon the spiritual natures of those with whom it comes into contact. Whereas, should it be run through the mental body, it will be creative intellect, and if through the physical body, 
sex force in the ordinary sense of the term. Yet he holds that wherever it runs, it is one and the same force, and that its final manifestation in procreation does not in any way degrade it, but that a force primarily spiritual being employed in procreation makes procreation itself a divine and sacred act. Popular thought, however, and especially theological thought, frightened by the well-known phenomenon of the sensuality of the mystic, does not regard the life force when manifested upon the physical plane as in any way a sacred thing, but rather as a manifestation of the lower side of our nature at war against our spiritual self. But there are some confessors, wise in human nature, who are shrewd enough to see it as different aspects of one and the same thing. So there you go. Um, contrary to sort of uh, mainstream theologians, Dion Fortune says that, uh, or contrary to more mainstream theologians who think of uh, sex as sort of a base physical thing, a sort of uh, uh, a necessary evil, something that God has somewhat redeemed through the sacrament of marriage, but is at root a kind of vulgar physical thing. Dion Fortune very brilliantly turns this on its head and says that actually sex in its origins on the higher planes of existence is a pure spiritual thing and it just manifests as as sex on this particular plane because this is the physical plane but on higher planes it will manifest as things like religious fervor um or you know mental creativity um but in in its root on the highest planes of existence it is a pure and beautiful spiritual thing so sex as it exists on this world on this plane it is a it manifests as sex, but on the higher plane, so it will manifest as sort of a religious fervor or creativity or whatnot. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Um, I quite like that idea because it shows sex as something that's ho that's good. It's you know it's a good thing in its in its origins, and it's not some it's it's not something that uh, has something lowly that has been redeemed by God through the sacrament of, mar of marriage. No, it's not something that started off lowly is my point and then became good somewhat through the mercy of god but rather it is good in its source on the higher planes and this is just sex on this plane is just the lowest manifestation of an an, uh, an intrinsically good thing um is my point i'm not trying to so it kind of it kind of yeah it kind of throws the traditional theological understanding of sex on its head and just says actually sex is a good thing in its origins and it just manifests as 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 sex on this plane of exist on this physical plane on the higher planes it has other manifestations um, i hope i'm coming across well i hope i'm explaining myself well um so it seemed that seemed quite affirming to me when i read that i don't know about the this idea about planes or whatever or if i agree with dion fortune's other ideas like i disagree with her idea about um uh, you know, the ultimate fate of the human soul in this sort of homogenized nirvana, and I I don't like her idea of reincarnation, so I don't know if I believe in these planes, but I don't know, it just, that seemed like a better, more healthy understanding of sex than one which thinks of it as something lowly that has been risen up. Um, instead, Dion Fortune presents it as something high, which has stooped down onto the physical plane, which, um, which perhaps ex explains some of the excesses of sex or the grotesque grotesqueities if that's a word of sex sometimes you know sex can be quite grotesque when it's not 
directed to its proper function within a loving marriage. Um, so yeah, that's that. I, that so I do like some of Dion Fortune's ideas. I'll continue reading this book. Uh, just to remind you, it's called The Esoteric Philosophy of Love and Marriage by Dion Fortune. Um, so I'll continue reading it. As I said, some of her ideas I disagree with. Some of them I quite like. Um, but, you know, it's good to read stuff you disagree with or stuff you're not sure about every once in a while, you know. I think to sum up... Um, to sum up my opinions on sort of uh, spiritual marriage um, and what I've been saying so far in this podcast, I oppose uh, free love in heaven uh, for the same reasons I oppose it on earth. It's as simple as that. It, it homogenizes eros when eros should be exclusive to be special. Just like any relationship, I think, has to be exclusive to be, to be special. I think agape should be a, a separate but nonetheless beautiful thing. That's where our love, our benevolence for everyone should come in, in agape. But that should be separate from love of family, you know, from our from our special relationships, you know. Um, so, yeah, um, I think that's enough spiritual talk for the time being. I might think of, I might remember to talk about something else. Um, again, I've sort of left it a little late with this uh, podcast. I think it, we're coming up to the three-week mark, and I think I said in the last podcast that three weeks was kind of my limit, because I kind of build up too much stuff to talk about. Um, and then it's a trouble to remember it all. But um, I'll have a go anyway. Um, I watched uh, Dune a few weeks ago, the new Dune movie by Denis uh, Villeneuve, um, who's a Quebec filmmaker um, and yeah I, I thought it was a very you know very enjoyable um, I love I think Denis Villeneuve um, I think I'm pronouncing his name right was uh, he said in the in an interview in the 90s the 90s that he was very um, interested in sort of authoritarianism he described himself as a sort of author authoritarian filmmaker I, I think you really get that from watching his films because his direction style, and you can really see this in this new Dune movie, and you can also see it with uh, Blade Runner 2049, which has likewise become a very big, uh, just as Dune is fast becoming uh, Blade Runner, the Blade Runner sequel. Blade, I think it's Blade Runner 2049, it might be like 2047 or something, but that film has also become, kind of become iconic in our, in our spheres. Um, uh, but if you uh, Dennis's um, directing style is quite authoritarian. It's uh, it's you're watching his films. You're always on the edge of your seat because you're always expecting these characters to like be crushed by some sort of steel beast of metal. You know, it's very oppressive. It's very he loves showing like machinery and loud grinding noises. You know, and you're just constantly on the edge of your seat because that's just so exciting. It's like watching fireworks or something it's like watching uh military footage you know you never know when something's gonna blow up you know um so he's such a brilliant director i came out of the film sort of out of the cinema sort of dazzled and i was like when was the last time i came out of the cinema feeling dazzled like this and i thought to myself well it was watching blade runner 2049 in uh 2017 you know now the last film he made you know so he's he's such a unique director. The production design was brilliant. 
um it's got this kind of quite a cool sort of minimalistic style um I've always felt that June was quite a um, optimistic vision of the future because it's it's set in a future where humanity has uh, survived the singularity, the technological singularity, and all machines, all thinking machines, were destroyed in a Butlerian jihad, um, and humanity has survived by just increasing human ability to the point. Uh, using sort of mental training as well as drugs su such as the spice melange, increasing human ability to a point where humans can substitute uh, for computers. So the threat of computers and artificial intelligence is no more. We've kind of reverted to this uh, sort of neo-feudal, um, this sort of feudal uh, political system, um, which has its problems, which are sort of laid out in June. And, you know, it's by no means a utopia, and it's still... Human beings are the same as they were, you know, 10,000 years earlier, and they're still just as corrupt um, and decadent. But uh, I think that in itself, I think, is affirming. Like, humans have remained human, basically. They may have better mental abilities, you know, using things like spice to improve their sort of uh, mathematical and sort of um, calculatory abilities. Um, they may be able to predict the future and things, and... Some of them may have mutated little by ingesting too much spice, but fundamentally they have remained human beings. And I think even if they are corrupt and horrible sometimes, like Baron Harkonnen, I feel that's a very positive vision of the future. I think that's part of the why why leftists hate it so much because it is kind of an anti-transhumanist, anti-anti-transhumanist uh, fictional world. You know, the singularity has been defeated. Liberal democracy is like long forgotten. Um, but I, f I feel it's pretty pretty affirming, um, and I feel that's why the right kind of gravitates towards it. Um, one thing one thing I feel they've added, which wasn't in the book, um, I, d I don't remember in the book if there was such an emphasis on sort of an, there was such an anti-colonial emphasis. I don't think, I mean, forg I, haven't I haven't read the book since like 2015. I read it in Marrakesh, which as you can imagine is very immersive because I was staying um I was staying right in the city centre of Marrakesh, you know. We were none we weren't we weren't in the touristy areas at all. We were right right in the centre of this sort of uh Arab sort of uh Berber marketplace. Um so and you know I, there were like donkeys running about. It was like being back and I say I don't mean to say snobbish when I say this, I mean this is a great compliment really because it was fascinating and fantastical, but it was like being back in the Middle Ages. Uh, you got the impression not much has, had changed then, so it was quite magical. Um, but that's where I, where I read Dune. Um, uh, I can't obviously it was a long time ago, so I can't quite remember. But I don't remember there being in the book such a, an anti-colonial emphasis. I don't think Paul really empathised with the Fremen. Um, he just joined them out of political expediency. It's quite a cynical. It's quite a cynical book. It's 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 quite as much much like Game of Thrones in that sense. Um, which I feel, I feel the film kind of lacked. It missed that kind. Of, it kind of went for more of a Hollywood esque style, um, rather than uh, rather than highlighting the kind of cynicism of the book. You know, I feel Paul just uh, allied with the Fremen for political expediency, and he didn't really care about their plight. Um, it, I don't think it was really emphasised in the book. I feel they've done that in the film, both to give it more of a Hollywood, make it more Hollywood, and. Uh, may, and also perhaps to you know make it a little more left, 
you know, peel to the left, but it's only backfired because, you know, the left has moved on from where they were, from like, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, and they ju just started calling it, like, a white saviour story. So I feel that's backfired. Um, I always thought a, a TV show like Game of Thrones would really work quite well for Dune. Um, uh, like a high-budget TV show. They did make one in the early 2000s. I haven't watched it. It doesn't look that great from what I've seen of it, though. It's kind of like pre-Game of Thrones, so I'm not sure how good it is. But if they made another one like Game of Thrones, I think that would have been the best expression for Dune, I think. I think with a film, it's always going to be somewhat compressed, I, th I feel, because uh, it is such a dense book. Um, but apart from that, apart from that, it's it was just a very impressive and enjoyable film, um, and really good, and... I feel they they are something they're incorporating which was left out of the Lynch version. And I, I, I enjoy the Lynch version. I think once you've read... I don't think it's that hard to understand. And if you've, Especially if you've read the book, I don't think, think it's that confusing. And it's just fun to watch this... Re, re, this very, you know, fun... It's fun to watch this fictional universe brought to the screen. I feel, feel it's got much better and much more imaginative production design than from what I've seen of the... Uh, of the Dune miniseries from the early 2000s. Uh, so I, I'll defend the Lynch version. I don't think it's awful. I don't think, I think, it, I guess it is a kind of corny. Um, but the the Lynch version is, um, is just a straight messiah story. There's no cynicism in that regard. Like, Paul is genuinely the Kwisatz Haderach, and the Kwisatz Haderach is genuinely the messiah, you know? Um, Whereas in the book, of course, um, the Kwisatz Haderach is something that's been engineered by the Bene Gesserit over centuries. It has no spiritual significance beyond that. You know, he can't make it rain or whatever. You know, he doesn't have magical powers. He's just got the powers the spice gives him. Um, he's not the re really the messiah. It's all sort of Bene Gesserit meddling. I f and the uh, it's it's a tragedy in the book. Um, it's uh, because Paul knows that by do doing his what he's doing, it will it will cause this terrible jihad to rage across the galaxy, which he cannot maintain, that he cannot contain. So it's kind of a tragedy in the end. And the theme of the Dune novels is, well, one of the themes is not to place too much trust or faith in charismatic leaders. Um, so that's something the uh, the Lynch adaption misses out. It just plays it as a straight messiah story. I really like the um, the Lynch version had a soundtrack by Toto and Brian Eno. It's quite good. I really it really uh, it's quite emotional because um, it kind of bring really brings out the sort of uh, the glory of like a messia messianic coming. You know, um, I I like sort of uh, messianic or spiritual music. You know. Uh, I like the soundtrack to the the Prince of Egypt of, as well for the same reason. It's quite it's very emotionally powerful, um, but it seems to, anyway. It seems to me that the Villeneuve version is gonna con at least while it may not contain the cynicism of Paul joining the Fremen, it do, it will contain um, it will contain uh, the cynicism of Paul's role as the Kwisatz Haderach as. It does seem that, yeah, well, it will have that theme of you know the tragedy of the incoming jihad of that of the holy war, 
and how Paul's actions are leading to this catastrophe, basically, which he cannot avert. Um, so at least it's incorporating that. Um, so yeah, I this I would re highly recommend it. Um, I unfortunately I didn't get to see it in an IMAX, um, but it was still quite a. I saw it twice. It was still quite a, a very impressive experience. It's one you've really got to see in a, in a cinema um, to get the full experience. Radfem Hitler, um, who many of you will know, um, she's. You know, she's been causing a bit of a storm on Twitter, uh, on sort of like the cultural right on Twitter, um, by sort of denouncing sort of, uh, you know, denouncing the Bapists and trads, you know, denouncing their kind of idiosyncrasies. Um, and it's, it's just, I, I agree with many of her denouncements, um, I agree with the Radfems in their in the in the denounce, you know, saying there was, you know, the Radfem Hitler pointed out recently um, that it's okay for girls to like twinks instead of chads, um, and I'd say yeah, I agree with that. I think the Bapists in their um, their uh, you know they have a very sort of masculine kind of homoerotic conception of what an attractive man is, um, and they don't really understand women or female urges or uh, sexuality very well, I don't think. Um, and they just think if they get big muscle, they have a very sort of caveman mindset of sort of, if I get big muscle and be strong and powerful, then women, women will want to come to me, you know, women will want to be with me. Um, and it, it, it can be a bit... Uh, cartoonish at times and I agree with Rad from Hitler that you know not all women want to chad they don't all want a big hunk you know some women want someone like Timothy Chalamet um you know so yeah I agree with that I think I mean I think that's just something that most people know already like that's something that's taken for granted in ordinary society and it's only on sort of the right-wing political fringe internet fringe that it's even up for debate and this kind of gets to my point with Radfem Hitler. My 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 point is like, why does she care? Is is basically my point. Like, I yeah, I agree with her. Like, Bapists and trads on the fringe internet right have a lot of eccentric and idiosyncratic tastes and opinions, and I don't agree with them either. But I just kind of laugh them off because you know they're not a threat because they're they're on the fringe and they're the race you know, the furthest extreme of, of, um, you know, of pol of Western politics. So, you know, they are being persecuted. They're not really a threat. Um, and if some successful movement is spawned out of, uh, the cultural right, as I hope it is, um, I, I would hope that as it becomes mainstream, it kind of sheds the more, ex the more kind of eccentric, um, non-practical elements, um, so she'll sort of shed some of these more embarrassing elements, I guess. So I don't get why Radfem Hitler cares so much that Bapists and trads have these idiosyncrasies. I don't care. I just laugh them off, you know. When a when a Bapist says, oh, you know, I'm going to get so many big muscles and then women will just want to have sex with me, I'm like, okay, sure, pal. You know, sure, sure thing, pal. Okay, you know, I just, I shrug it off because I don't consider them a threat because they're evidently not a threat. They're persecuted they're, most of them are, are kind of like incels on the internet, you know, who cares, you know, just laugh along, but I, you know, 
occasionally BAP does, you know, have some wisdom, and that's that's why I'm here. That's why I'm hanging around these people. Um, so why is Radfem Hitler coming here? Just uh, on the other Radfems, just uh, just making fun of them and just shitting all over them, and it's kind of suspicious. It's kind of suspect to me because why should she care? Why why can't she be a radical feminist in more mainstream spheres? Why does she have to do it in sort of frog Twitter? You know what I mean? Um, so that I find that awfully suspect. It would be much surely it'd be much easier for her to be a radical feminist in more mainstream spheres. Like what sets her apart from a normie radical feminist? Is it just because is she racist or something? I mean, I mean, I assumed Radfem Hitler was just like a joke name. Uh, I don't know if she's actually racist. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't see. I haven't paid much attention to her tweets, but this is just my first impression of her. Really. Um, I don't, why does she give a shit? Why don't you, yeah. Uh, so I find that quite suspicious. I kind of feel that lends credence to the accusation that she's, you know, she's uh, fed basically and she's just being sent to court so tra so discord and stir up trouble. And I think the best thing to do with such people is just to ignore them um, and not take the bait and just ignore. That's the best thing to do. Um, so yeah, those are just my thoughts on Radfem, Hitler, and the Radfems. Um, why do they care? Why do they care? Another thought I've had is that um, as artificial intelligence gets better, um, it's becoming more and more common for us to see sort of AI-created uh, so-called art. You know, AI-created songs, AI-created paintings, you know. As we see more and more of this, I wonder... If in the future there'll be no more art, as it were, but there will be artists, because AI will get to a point where it can create these most beautiful paintings and things, but I don't think it'll interest us because there's no human behind it, you know? I feel when we look at art, we want to feel the human soul behind it, you know? Um, and so I feel the artist will become more important at the expense of art. Uh, well, not at the expense of art, but instead, as, as art becomes something that's more easily created by soulless technology, then the artist will become more valuable, because then we, as human beings, can say, look, this is a real human being just like us, and he's expressing his soul, and we'll find that more valuable than sort of the most beautiful painting that was sort of patched together by a machine, you know? Um, because that's what really matters about art, is that it's humans gazing at the world and sort of marvelling at its beauty. Um, so that's just that's just a thought I've had recently that the the artist is going to become is going to, the the value of the artist is going to increase as the value of the art itself decreases I guess um, I I really feel yeah I really feel AI AI created so called art may be pretty or beautiful um, but I feel we will come to miss that human element and we want to see humans expressing themselves and that's will go to artists for that you know um so that's just another little thought i'd had that i thought i'd mention as for art i do have some certain artistic uh idiosyncrasies um for example uh i'm very particular about music um and if I hear music which isn't to my tastes, I will react quite uh, quite violently against it. I really don't like I really don't like 
music that I find distasteful. I don't know. I, for example, I don't like, I don't like um, music from the '90s and the 2000s. Uh, I don't like uh, Radiohead. I find that really nihilistic. I don't like Britpop. I find it kind of nihilistic and mundane. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I, I, that kind of music really depresses me. Um, I guess it's just that that sense of it's got a certain immaturity to it. I guess, especially Radiohead, it's kind of a certain immaturity coupled with pretentiousness, um, which I can't stand. Um, people think think that Radiohead are great artists. I kind of find them really immature and pretentious, um, kind of angsty. I can't stand that sort of teenage angst, so I can't listen to Radiohead or Blur um, or Suede, you know, I, I, and when I do hear it, because I, I, I find it ugly in this sense, I, it, it just depresses me to hear it, um, and it's, it's just, it just brings me back to kind of the mundanity of, uh, sort of the, of sort of you know my childhood in the in the early 2000s you know the, the world is the, I think the world was a very ugly place in the in the 90s and the early 2000s and a very mundane place um and I I can't stand to be brought back to that by listening to Radiohead or Blur or Suede or whatever you know I find it quite ugly I think the British 90s were much more ugly and immature and nihilistic compared to the uh the American 90s the American 90s have a certain color and beauty and vibrancy to them, which the British 90s don't have, you know. I like watching the French Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's very colourful and beautiful and wholesome, uh, you know. I, or, you know, Disney Renaissance movies from the 90s. They're all quite wholesome and beautiful. America was doing well in the 90s, whereas Britain was kind of uh, after stagnating after years of Tory rule and kind of childishly rebelling against that Tory rule, and then it, it culminated in the election of Tony Blair, you know, very ugly decade. Um, so yeah, I've got, I've got a very sensitive, um, I've, I'm very sensitive to, uh, to ugliness, um, to art that are not, that is not to my tastes. Um, same thing with architecture, like a while ago I was on the bus and there's this really ugly new town being built near to in the village near to where I live and it's I pass it on the bus the buildings are so ugly I've described them before as the architectural equivalent of that you know that ghastly corporate art style that's used by Google or the or the architectural equivalent of warm sick you know they're really really grotesque I, I can't it's I, I just like the best yeah corporate art is the best comparison they're kind of a kind of cheery but because it's in it's a fake cheeriness it's kind of like a that makes it all the more disgusting i don't know i don't know i can't put my finger around finger on it but it's just they're very ugly and, to, uh, and again it's this sense of mundaneness um which i can't stand and i just passed them for a, a second on the bus a few weeks ago and that just made me depressed for the rest of the day just because i glimpsed these ugly houses and that immediately filled my mind with immediately they had, had immediately felt made me feel alienated this is another thing which such art does it makes you feel alienated from history because it's so detached from it so divorced from anything that's come before um so it just made me feel completely alienated and 
I felt like I was in a world which uh, I was unfamiliar with um, and I felt quite depressed for the rest of the day. So it really does have an effect. Your environment really does have an effect on your psychological health. You know, granted, I may be more sensitive than others, but I feel it's a real it's a real big deal. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to mention some of, <laughs> some of my artistic idiosyncrasies. Um, another thing which disturbs me is um, when people talk about casual sex sort of casually talk about sex casually i think i think that's quite vulgar as i say i place romance very highly i value it very much um i sort of think of it as this very sacred thing i think it's very romantic it's a very romantic and beautiful concept not only to have sex with your one true love in your life um i think if you haven't managed to do that then of, of course you should forgiveness waits for you um but I feel it's a really beautiful goal. Um, so when people talk casually, when pe when I hear when I overhear people or when people talk to me so casually about their sexual encounters, it just really disgusts me and repulses me because it ruins this uh, this very uh, noble conception of sex that I have. Um, it really does disturb me. Um, I think casual sex sort of takes the honour out of sex so that it just becomes this lowly, laughable, embarrassing thing. Just two sort of substandard bodies grinding and grunting on top of each other, you know. I feel... I feel, do feel... Sex has to be ennobled by, by things like the sac sacrament of marriage. And I, without it, it just becomes this lowly biological thing. And so yeah that just it really disturbs and disgusts me I, I hate that about the modern world it's just unerotic beyond anything else i i feel um yeah sex i feel i feel even from an erotic point of view i feel sex has to be special to be erotic it has to be contained it has to be cont it has to be constrained to be erotic to be powerful um i think this is becoming a theme of this podcast that is exclusivity breeds power um, you know, if something has to be exclusive to be powerful and potent. Um, I feel, I feel that's uh, that's the the principle which is emerging from this podcast so far. Um, but yeah, sex, sex between one man and one wife for the entirety of their lives. You know, constrained to that perfect union, loving union. I feel that's when sex is at its can be potentially at its strongest and most erotic. Um, obviously, a lot of married couples just let their sexuality go to waste and they have very dull sex lives but when I am married that is not what I, I aspire to I don't think I think I've got to marry someone with a, with, a, with a libido as strong as mine and I think it could be a very powerful thing when we are finally married you know um, so I think the, the modern world is, is deeply unerotic because it has turned sex from this very dangerous powerful thing you know, sex is this powerful thing. You are, it's 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 got a hint, a beautiful hint of death around it. You know, you are facilitating your replacement. You are creating new life. You are creating the continuation of your, your, you know, your blood. You know, it's got to be this powerful thing. And by making it such a cozy, twee thing, it's the world is tremendously unerotic. You know, I this is what I hate about programs like sex education. You know, they're turning or community, you know, they turn sex into quite a cosy, fuzzy thing. It's just that's oh, so 
so unerotic. That's so unappealing and unattractive. Um, I feel the ideal, which not many married couples don't have, frankly, don't have the imagination to do this, and they lead very boring sex lives. But I feel within myself, and if I find the right person, I have the capacity to have a very powerful sex life with my future wife. Um, if we, if I, if I marry someone with romantic and sexual urges as strong as mine, we can create something truly beautiful. If I may, if I may be so explicit in this podcast, but this must be the most unerotic age in human history. Um, I feel if you read old texts, whether even if it's the Bible itself, these are extremely erotic documents, and you can sort of feel the testosterone in the men, and you can feel the. I don't know what the the equivalent would be in a woman. Estrogen isn't the female hormone. That's uh, as as Bap went over in one of his podcasts. That's a misunderstanding. But whatever the equivalent is in women, you know, you can really feel women were very feminine in the old days. Men were very masculine, and we're we've, we're losing that in this in the modern world. We're all pumped full of sort of microplastics and seed oils. Everyone's being sort of nullified and turning into these asexual beings. You know. Um, it, it, as a consequence, the world's become quite an unerotic place. You know, this is what I mean when I say, mas- when I said earlier, masculinity and femininity. I've always had a very strong sense of them being very, two very, diff- very di- opposing but equally powerful concepts, like the two sides of a magnet is how it's best to describe them. Um, it's it's this powerful polarity which makes for the best romance and the best sex. I think. Um, I feel by blurring that, everyone becoming like bisexuals or pansexuals removes the eroticism, I, fi- I think. I think insects meant women want a powerful man. Um, you know, for, as an example, many women want a... Um, insects, women want a, a manly man and men want a womanly woman for the most part, I think. Um but yeah, so it's and so few people are. And yeah, we're just over and un, inundated with sort of sort of sex in its most sort of uh, sterile form, you know, and sort of pornography. Everyone can just access pornography on the internet whenever they want it. Um, everyone's having sort of casual sex with just ugly strangers, you know, people they don't care for, have any. It's it's cheapened sex, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and many people aren't having sex anymore. Um, it's it's become a case where a select group of people are having loads of sex, but you know what kind of sex? Like meaningless sex, cheap sex, whereas everyone else is just not having any at all. Um, so it's it's this is a profoundly unerotic age, and uh, you know I just I've described myself as a traditionalist, but I I feel I'm a I'm, uh, as, as I think is clear from my thoughts on spirituality and things, I'm a different kind of traditionalist. Tradition means something different to me than it does to a kind of sort of prude, a kind of prudish Christian. Um, I, I, you know, I, I believe in a return to uh, sort of human values, and that in- includes a return to eroticism, you know. Uh, I believe in, you know, I believe in, I believe in chastity. I believe that sex should be for marriage. Um, but that, uh, for me personally, that only makes it all the more powerful and holy. I went to the uh, Tate Modern recently, 
was um I, I went there because although I don't really like contemporary art um I still feel that you know occasionally a modern art museum is quite a surreal place to go and I appreciate surrealism um because it is you know it's a, it's a surreal experience that you've got all these ugly and misshapen objects in this museum and you have a load of people standing around gawking at them you know it, it's surreal it makes no sense it's like topsy turvy it's like it's a, it's a bizarre place um uh it's it's bizarre in a way a, a gallery full of traditional art couldn't be because a gallery full of traditional art makes sense a modern art gallery doesn't make any sense because it's full of shit you do you understand what i mean it's full of but not just shit, but sort of it is. You can appreciate, like, I think at the Tate in London they have like some light shows and things. You know, it's it's full of surreal objects. If you can't appreciate the art in there as art itself, you can at least appreciate it as a kind of surreal, weird object, something you don't see in your day to day life. Um, so it was okay. You know, it wasn't as surreal as I had hoped it would be. Um, it was just a, a lot of just trash in there that wasn't particularly interesting to look at. Um, the light that like I remember there being a sort of light area, so I think it's called the Infinity Zone or whatever. You have to pay a separate ticket for that, so we couldn't go and see that, unfortunately. Yeah, so that's all I have to say, really. The Tate, as a, the Tate in London was founded in the year two thousand. It's a very, it, it does feel very uh, Brit poppery. It does feel like Brit popper HQ. Um, it's it's not even that stuff in there is completely bad. It's just that. A lot of the stuff in there is, you know, I would deign to call it art, but um, it's just not worthy of being in a national gallery in the heart of the capital. You know what I mean? It's just, it's if if my if my son made it when he was like, you know, if my son made it, then I'd stick it on my fridge. But I don't think it should be in a national gallery. You know what I mean? Um, if I saw it in someone's garden, I'd think, oh, that's pretty cool. But as I said, it just. It shouldn't be in a gallery. There's a there's a hierarchy to art, you know. I feel there's a hierarchy to beauty. Um, I feel we can get we. Can, I feel when when you say make a statement like, uh, you know, I support a return to sort of a I, I support a return to beauty in in the arts, and people say, well, you know, I I quite like such and such painting by Rothko or something, and I was like, okay, fine. Um, I'm not saying that the painting by Rothko is is awful and should be burnt I'm just saying there's a hierarchy to it and there are paintings by pre-Raphaelites which are much more beautiful, you know what I mean that's, that's all we're saying is that there's a hierarchy we don't have to be iconoclasts and burn everything down, we should just prioritise some things over others um, although I would like, to be fair, I would like to demolish a few ugly buildings but only because they don't deserve to be in a public place I think a public place has to be the least offensive because it's a place that everyone has to share together and it's just common decency that you should try and build buildings that are appealing to everyone. You know what I mean? That's just common decency. I've been thinking about taking myself a little more little more seriously recently. Um, I sort of had this curious idea that um, there are sort of several different sort of sub-personalities to me or several... like. I encompass sort of several different characters, um, and I've sort of given them different names. So there's uh, there's uh, there's someone I call the Prince, or I might call him the Prince anyway, and he's sort of he's me in my more serious form. You know, he's the 
He's sort of me as I am mostly in my podcast. I'd say my podcast is quite serious. Um, I sort of expect to be taken seriously in my podcast. Of course, that's not an absolute rule because I, I do make a joke here and then and I do act silly here and then, try and keep it entertaining and I do swear, you know. Um, so, But generally, The Prince is my more sort of political, more sort of... Uh, the more political side of myself that sort of demands to be taken seriously... Or who, who should be taken seriously in my, in my most serious I sort of incorporate this character um, but then there's also there's also the mystic and I would describe that as sort of my spiritual self like the the part the version of Revo who is interested in sort of spirituality and getting closer to God um, and you've obviously heard a lot of him this podcast because that, that, I've been talking about such matters um and there's also the lover. Um, as I said, I've got a very big appreciation for romance. This is the uh, this is the Revo who exists as a sort of uh, sexual being, I guess, who um, was a romantic being who has yearnings of the heart, you know, uh, for the opposite gender. Um, and then there's Revo the jester, um, who is me when I'm being silly, who's uh, when I'm making jokes and things, and I. I feel we've seen a little, perhaps a little too much of the jester recently. I do, I do like to play the comedian. I do. Um, I mean, my alt on, on Twitter, my Twitter alt, uh, is you know I'm always, being acting like an, a fool on there. I'm always making jokes. I hope people, I hope to God people aren't taking it uh, too, seriously. Um, because uh, I do, I do. Uh, I'm always having fun on there, you know. Uh, I, I hope people aren't taking it all at face value. Um, so that's the jester. Maybe I'm a little too much of a jester. Maybe I'm too open, open with myself, and I am. Uh, I'm act too much like the fool. Um, maybe I need to prioritize the prince a little more. But it, you know, um, it's fun, you know. Uh, but that's that's another part of me, the jester, the comedian, I guess. The, the, you know, my TikToks are like that as well. I've got a lot of sort of silly funny TikToks, you know. Um, so that's a big part of me as well. Um, and then there's uh, a part I would call the poet. Um, he's the uh, he's the more serious uh, sort of... Um, the more serious artistic part. So I guess the jester would be the more comic part. He's... The, the poet would be his more sort of uh, serious artistic counterpart. He'd be the one... He would be the one who makes more serious sort of artistic efforts, whether it be films or, uh, you know, my Substack writings. My Substack, I, I guess you could call it poetry, but it, that tends to be a mix of the poet and the jester, because I have some like funny parts in there as well, some jokes, but some stuff that is also quite yearning and uh, heartfelt. Um, but also I've made some like fantasy writings and things which I'm uploading on my Substack, so that would be sort of the poet's domain. So I don't know. Um, it's I've I've just this is the thought that I've had recently. It's sort of, I feel it helps me because I'm I have quite diverse interests. Um, it's sort of thinking of myself subcategorizing myself into these separate personalities. Um, I feel might be quite helpful because it might help guide me. So when I'm being too much of the jester, as I have I feel I have been recently, it might be good to sort of prioritize the prince so that people don't just think of me as a laughing stock. You know. So it it might be good in that sense to try and maintain a kind of balance between these sort of sub sub personalities, I guess. Um, so that, I don't know. That's an interesting interesting concept I've thought of recently. 
I don't know if there, there are any more. Maybe there could be another one that's called, like, The Family Man or, or something. I don't know. Anyway, that's... Uh, maybe maybe you should try that um, at home. And maybe you should think, like, what... Who am I? What what are the sub-components of my personality? Am I a lover? Am I a, a poet? Am I a jester? You know. Try it at home. Uh, on Saturday, I rewatched uh Monsieur v Verdot. I think it's Verdot. Monsieur Verdot. Monsieur Verdot, I think, perhaps. Um, but it's uh, one of the later films by Charlie Chaplin. Um, it's quite good. Um, it wasn't as... It's it's a little uh, clumsy in places, um, but I, it's always a joy to watch Chaplin on screen. He's just such so entertaining to watch. Um, so it's a, it's a film I'd recommend. I'd recommend all I'd recommend all of Charlie Chaplin's filmography really, apart from I, I wasn't actually the biggest fan of The Great Dictator. Um, a King in New York is is one of his last films. It's a terrible one. Um, and I, I don't recommend his last film, The Countess from Hong Kong. I don't like that one either. But generally, I'd recommend all his films. I, he's a very... Um, people think of Charlie Chaplin just as this sort of caricaturish comedian. And it, while he can be very funny, he's they neglect the other side of his filmography in that he's a very... His films are very beautiful as well. They're very bittersweet and poignant. And he... A Chaplin really understands a sort of bittersweet poignancy of and poetry of life, you know, and it's, it's his films are so beautiful in that regard. Um, and I I, f I feel another problem is that people, by focusing on his early work in the silent era, they neglect his um his later work, films like his later sound films, films like Monsieur Verdot, or um. Uh, personal favourite, Limelight, it's a very beautiful film by him um, I think that's about it, Monsieur Vidot, Limelight and as I said I don't like A King in New York or A Countess from Hong Kong The Great Dictator is probably, Great Dictator I wasn't that big of a fan of uh, I, fi I think Modern Times was his first has got elements of sound in it, Modern Times is a brilliant film by him as well um by the, uh, to be fair, yeah, I think it's just I think it's just Monsieur Voodoo and Limelight, which are are his two really good sound films. Um, uh, I'm not counting Modern Times because uh, it doesn't have. It's really still pretty much a silent film, although Mon Modern Times is brilliant as well. But um, I I feel it's, it's a real shame that those are his only two good sound films um because chaplin writes such brilliant dialogue it's such great dialogue it's it's he's he was such a philosopher um it all his his dialogue is so rich and philosophical and um so full of so much sort of life wisdom and life pondering um it reminds me of the sort of dialogue that i've written in the past for um audio store audio dramas which i have not released yet but I will release at some point. I would write like that as well. And in short stories as well, which I've written, which, again, I have not released yet, but I will release at some point. I've sort of... I write in this called a sort of... I'm very... I'm a fan of sort of eccentric, long-winded, sort of philosophical, entertaining dialogue, which sort of goes in many different directions, incorporates lots of different elements like humour and 
you know philosophy and poetry and beauty and I, I, I love rich dialogue like that and Chaplin was a master at it so it's a shame he only made two really good uh, sound films um, uh, but because he, he made he wrote such, such great dialogue um, so that's such a shame um, I, 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 re I really would recommend Monsieur Vidot and Limelight especially Limelight as I said Monsieur Vidot it's an okay film it's, it's quite good I love seeing Chaplin he's such an entertaining person to watch um, and he's, his dialogue is brilliant full of many sort of philosophical themes um, but it is a little clumsy in places Limelight is really his uh, masterpiece in that regard um, yeah it's such a shame he only made two really good sound films because his dialogue is so good um, and I would I would I would yeah it's such a shame um, but I feel I feel this, these other sides to Chaplin's artistry are sort of neglected because everyone just focuses on the funny man with the moustache and they neglect the fact that he is actually these films are actually quite beautiful and poignant and heartfelt and philosophical and just oh so beautiful I have um, I have very, very strong memories, I was first introduced to Chaplin, I first introduced myself to Chaplin um, on sort of cold winter's nights, I remember it very distinctly um, I was feel I was very depressed for reasons I won't go into. Um, but these these were some cold winters nights in in student accommodation, and I would you know I'd I'd indulge myself in Domino's pizzas, um, almost every night. <laughs> um, I didn't really know how how not to waste my money back then. Um, I was so depressed, and I'd be listening to melancholy music and I'd come back to my room with this nice warm pizza and I'd be all, all completely frozen um, and I, as I'd warm myself up and eat this nice warm pizza I'd I'd search up a Charlie Chaplin film and I'd watch it on on YouTube because most of them are on YouTube um, I don't know why because they're not they're not in the in the public domain but because he only died in the 1970s but this was a few years ago now so maybe they've been removed but I'd watch them on YouTube and um I think my 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 dog's sneezing sneezing. Um, I watched them on YouTube and uh, and I would just it would it's the they're the perfect films to watch when you're feeling sad and sorry for yourself really. There's because they're so full of such sweetness and poignancy and bittersweetness. Um, they really touch your heart and Chaplin understood this so well. And something else about his films, he he wrote his own scores. Um, he wrote his own scores. Um, by right, I mean, I believe this is true. It may be anecdotal, but I believe this is true. He he didn't know he was he came from a poor background, um, and he didn't know musical notation. But he came up with lots of songs in his head, lots of melodies in his head, and he'd sing them in the bath to uh, a composer he worked with, and the composer would turn it into musical notation, and that would be the score for his films. Um, and in this sense, Chaplin was um, a great composer, and is he's one of actually one of my favourite composers because um, his music is so beautiful and so melodic. I really appreciate melody in classical music. I feel it can be neglected, neglected for all sorts of you know sort of musical pretentiousness. But I feel melody is really the core of music, um, and it's a very melodic, very bittersweet, and beautiful, and poignant, and dramatic. Um, 
And I, I, I wish I could do that. I wish I had a composer friend who would be willing to just sit next to me while I'm having a bath and I could just sing these melodies to him and he would write them down because really I ha I do have loads. I My head's constantly full of songs that I invent myself and they're really good. There's some real chart toppers in my head, you know, um, but I can't. Music is the one art where you, unless you're a good singer, you can't just translate it. Um, you can't just translate it. Uh, if you have it in your head, that doesn't mean anything, you know, until it's, until it's, until it's been played on an instrument or written down, you know. I can't, I can't translate all these. Uh, if I have a like, if I have an idea for a poem or a story, I can just write it down, no problem. But if I have a really good symphony in my head, which I often do, I can't. I I have no means of producing it. I could try putting it on the piano, but I don't know how to play the piano, so I can't really. I can't really play it on an instrument and I can't write no, write it down in notation either. So it just has to remain in my head. I could try singing it, um, but I'm not a great singer and I wouldn't get the notes right. Um, and it would sound bad. So I, I wish I had the luxury that Chaplin had because, um, you know, I, I, do, I am trying to get into music. But anyway, my, my point is Chaplin was a great composer as well and he composed the music to all his own films in this sort of indirect way, um, which I greatly respect him for, um, and it, the music is very beautiful, um, and it sort of adds to this experience. As I said, I was on cold nights, I'd be sitting there with my Domino's pizza, very sort of uh, depressed um, and melancholy and feeling sorry for myself and uh, crying, and uh, there'd be tears in my eyes, and then I'd watch this, so, this such a beautiful film, um, and it was, I would feel Chaplin sort of consoling me basically, and he'd be saying, look, life is this poignant, beautiful, bittersweet thing. I'm suffering with you, exploring, you know, Chaplin's little little tramp would be suffering with me and exploring life's poignancy with me, you know, and I, so beautiful, so beautiful. Um, I feel real, real powerful moments of this where the score comes in to really heighten your emotions. I'd say the, the, the scene in The Kid, where the kid is kidnapped by, um, uh, by sort of a, what would you call them, child welfare authorities. Um, that's such a poignant scene, and the, the Chapman's beautiful score really reaches a crescendo. Um, there's another, at the end of Modern Times, where the tramp and the gammon are walking off into the sunset. There's, you know, the score is just so beautiful. It's such a beautiful scene. I wrote an article on Charlie Chaplin, actually, on my old blog, revo.net. I might read it out now, actually, because why not? I have been considering, um, I have been considering, uh, reading, uh, my old articles out on my podcasts, um, or reading my Substack stories on my podcasts, um, because I do want to read them out. I, I've always wanted to just read them out, um, on YouTube as separate videos to make kind of like audio versions of them. Um, but I've just never got round to it. So I thought I, I seem only to have enough time in my week to make a podcast. I don't seem to have time to make audio adaptions of my articles or my stories. Um, so maybe I should just do incorporate them into the podcast. Um, let me know what you think about that because I I don't know. I I I think they get more views if they existed as separate things, but I think it's clear by this point I just don't have time for that. So if I'm already recording a podcast anyway, 
maybe I can incorporate them into my podcast. Um, because let's face it, my podcasts are a complete mix of different subjects anyway. So, you know, it wouldn't make much difference. And, I, you know, hopefully people people who don't have the patience to sort of read my Substack or read my old, old articles, then I could reiterate them here, you know, in a in this format, you know. So let me know what you think about that. Um, I think I'll... I'll describe my Chaplin article now, uh, as it seems to be relevant. Um, I haven't read this. I haven't read this in uh, a few years. I think I wrote it in 2019. So, um, so I don't know. I so I don't know what it will be like, but I'll, I'll read it out now. It's only short. Um, it's it's my review of the Chaplin film Modern Times, which I've I've mentioned a few times now, uh, from 1936. So I'll just read this this out. I think I wrote this article in January 2019. After rewatching the Laurel and Hardy classic Sons of the Desert last Sunday, I've since thought I'd try out another comedy great from that era, whose films I don't think I've ever seen before: Charlie Chaplin. So this week I watched The Great Dictator, 1940, which I generally found pretty plain and uncomfortably outdated, which Chaplin himself admitted, since the 1945 discovery of the full extent of the Holocaust. Nevertheless, it is historically interesting, and contains a very powerful speech as a finale. As The Great Dictator was arguably Chaplin's last major film, I then decided to go back to where it all began with Mabel's strange predicament, 1914, a clever, entertaining short directed by and starring the fascinating Mabel Normand. This was the first film to be made featuring Chaplin's iconic character, The Tramp, though not the first to be released. Kid Auto Races at Venice was filmed later but released earlier. And today I watched Modern Times, 1936, The Little Tramp's last appearance. Spoilers ahead. Modern Times is fascinating in many ways. It features the tramp suffering a stress-induced nervous breakdown, leading a communist va- rally, and snorting cocaine. Despite being released almost nine years after the jazz singer ushered in the sound age, the film is in many respects a silent picture, outdated for its time with only fleeting instances of recorded dialogue. Apparently Chaplin was preparing for this to be his first sound film, but in the end decided that letting the tramp speak would ruin the character's peculiar mystery and appeal. The Tramp was also supposed to be an American, but Chaplin had a thick British accent. Subsequently, this would be the last film to feature the character. However, the audience do get to hear The Tramp in one exceptional scene towards the end of the film, although only in the form of a nonsensical gibberish song. The film begins as a science fiction, with The Tramp performing high-pressure, back-breaking work, screwing nuts on an assembly line. He can't even take a cigarette break without catching the attention of the ever-watchful factory owner who surveys his workforce through the use of Big Brother-esque screens. The assembly line ever quickens in pace, and there is a hilarious scene in which the owner tests out a feeding machine on Chaplin's character in the hope that it will make the lunch break obsolete. The sets here are gorgeous, featuring majestic, fantastical clockwork machinery in which the tramp in a deservedly iconic sequence, gets trapped. It rather reminded me of the 1933 Laurel and Hardy short Busybodies, in which a similar thing happens to Hardy. Eventually, his repetitive, stressful work gets too much for him, and the tramp has a nervous breakdown. 
In probably the comedic highlight of the film, he runs amok, screwing everything he finds. He chases a prim-looking chubby woman down the street, trying to screw the buttons on her comically large breasts. Then he's sent to a mental institution, and after being released, accidentally gets involved in a communist rally, another comic highlight. He's arrested and put in prison, in which he, among other things, ingests cocaine, or snorting powder, as the film innenuously puts it. The tramp is in and out of prison so many times in this film, I can't even be bothered to make a tally. When the tramp is released for the first time, he meets an orphaned homeless gamin, played by the beautiful and very American-looking Paulette Goddard, Chaplin's partner at the time, in her first starring role. She would later appear in The Great Dictator. Not long after this, the film begins to drag, as so many comedies do, when, towards the middle, they take their eyes off the humour in order to focus on the serious stuff, like plot, drama and love. Nevertheless, the romance between the two tramps is very charming. Overall, Modern Times is an unrelenting satire on the American dream. Nowhere is this more apparent than a scene in which, after yet another close encounter with the law, the tramp and the gamin find themselves on the curb. They witness a husband lovingly depart his adoring housewife as he goes off to work, and the housewife blissfully skips back into the house. The tramp and the gamin mock them, before fantasising about what it would be like if they, had li if they lived together in a home of their own like that. The fantasy sequence that follows is both satirical and charming. The gamin is dressed with a bow in her hair like an idealised housewife. They are living in a land of plenty. The tramp picks luscious ripe fruits from a tree growing conveniently outside the window, and notably discards a barely eaten fruit out the same window when he's done. He only needs to whistle for a big fat cow to trot inside his, trot outside his front door and spray plenteous milk into a glass without even the need to milk its udders. While he waits for the glass to fill up and for the gamin to finish cooking an oversized steak, again the tramp picks fruits, grapes this time, from a conveniently placed tree. The sequence ingeniously both makes sense from a plot point of view, of course this is the sort of idealised vision hungry, penniless American urchins would have of the American dream, and also from a thematic point of view, as a satire of that same idealisation. The fantasy sequence ends, revealing it as being the tramp's playful fancy. Happy-go-lucky as he always is, he seems to find the fantasy only merely amusing, but then the camera brilliantly pans to the left, revealing the gamin gazing dreamily into it. Evidently the dream really means something to her. After a lifetime of destitution, the thought of the possibility of a life of plenty is enrapturing. Noticing this, the tramp, in a characteristic spirit of charity, announces, I'll do it, we'll get a home, even if I have to work for it. Work, of course, being a return to the same assembly line, seen in all its maddening detail at the beginning of the film. Actually, the gamin and the tramp very nearly achieve their dreams at the end of the picture, when they get jobs in a cafe as a dancer and a singing waiter, respectively. However, it seems the gamin cannot escape her past, as the police try to arrest her for her prior vagrancy and escape from juvenile officers. She and the tramp have to flee the cafe just as he's become a hit, and return to their old life, impoverished and homeless. The gamin breaks down crying, saying, What's the use of trying? A phrase which perfectly represents the total opposite of the American dream. The tramp, happy-go-lucky as ever, an experienced vagrant, after 22 years of films worth of vagrancy, comforts her. Buck up, never say die, we'll get along. He tells her to put a smile on her face, and arm in arm, 
They walk into the distance as the music reaches a crescendo. A bittersweet romantic ending for the film and for the character of the tramp, whom we are never to see again. So there you go. Um, that was my review of Modern Times. I uh, wrote a few years uh, a few years ago. Um, it's a very beautiful film. I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Um, as I'd recommend uh, Monsieur Vidou and um, Limelight, especially. I think Limelight is the the best of his his uh, sound films and full of beautiful philosophical poetic dialogue, which I really appreciate because I've I've tried to do a similar thing in my short stories and uh, my uh, audio dramas, which will be released soon. Um, you may, if you've noticed any change in the sound or um, in the way I, I'm speaking, it's because I'm recording this now a day later. I had a little break. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that's the movie magic behind, behind this podcast. Um, uh, I, as I was just talking about Monsieur Vadou, um, so I'd like to continue on, on the French theme. Um, I watched, uh, the latest Wes Anderson movie, The French Dispatch, on Sunday. Um... I like the first story. Um, it's it's an anthology film, so it's I think it's like four four or five parts, uh, four or five stories. I liked, I liked the, uh, I mean, the, I liked I liked the story uh, about uh, the artist. That was fairly fairly entertaining. I was fairly absorbed in that. Um, uh, I didn't. I wasn't very interested in the story with Timothy Chalamet. Uh, falling in love with, uh, well, not falling, just sleeping with an older woman. You know, you know how sort of casual sex. Uh, I find it quite grotesque. I've never liked, uh, f- uh f- you know, free free love or free lust. You know, and I found it quite cringe. Um, so that was a theme in the second story. Uh, so that kind of put me off. Um, and it was just kind of boring. I didn't really care. It was about sort of. Uh, the student revolutions in France um, in uh, the 1960s, and they were, you know, that's always seemed the the fake sort of CIA revolutions of the 60s have never interested me. They've always seemed really sort of uh, lowly and fake and pretentious, um, um, and just just and the, the the you know the political play of of spoilt boomers, you know. Um, you know, the French Revolution was just caused because some male students wanted to get into some female dormitories. You know what I mean? Like this is hard. This is hardly high and noble stuff. You know. But anyway, I didn't. So yeah, I didn't. I like I kind of my interest kind of waned after that. Um, uh, and I, I wasn't terribly interested in the last story either. So um, I don't know. I've never been. I haven't watched that many Wes Anderson films. I'm not. The biggest fan of him, I, he's kind of a, he's kind of an irritating hipster. Um, I, I, I don't, re- I'm not that big a fan of his style of direction. You know, I'm, I appreciate uniqueness and people trying to do things uniquely, but um, for me personally, I don't like that level of neatness. He's a very neat director. Everything's directed, uh, you know, he's, he's got very stable shots, like a like a silent movie. Um, and I kind of like direction that's a little more messy and fre- and frenetic and energetic. I really like um, Terry Gilliam's style of direction for this reason, because he's especially in films like Brazil, he's like shoving the camera in uh, people's faces, you know, using uh, 
wide angle lenses you know i really really like that and i i did a little bit of that in my uh uh in my graduate film the dark age um i think i did anyway but um so yeah i've no, never been that big a fan of him um yeah i've ne i've never been that big a fan of him he's a bit of a pretentious hipster um but i appreciate the uniqueness i appreciate the creativity um, I, I don't know, I just don't really like his style, I guess, I don't, I don't, I don't like those, his colour palette, really, I don't, I, I, I mentioned in the last podcast, I didn't really like that kind of colour palette, because you see it in, of sort of like beiges and yellows and oranges, because it's in every sort of corporate advert these days, you know, if you look on it, watch any corporate advert, it's always full of beiges and oranges, and I don't know, that just seems to be the fashion these days. I'm not a big fan. It's kind of 70s-ish. I kind of find it kind of sickly. Um, I I prefer uh, blues and greens and purples, personally. Um, and sort of either rich colour or a lack of... or, or no colour, not sort of this sort of sickly, warm colour in between, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've, I've got mixed feelings on Wes Anderson. Um... I don't find it his films that funny either. I kind of find it kind of uh, I don't know. So I don't know. I'm being very critical, but I think I'm I'm sounding more critical than I am. I th I feel you know I I think I'm sounding I'm sounding more critical because um, he you know I appreciate the creativity. I appreciate the uniqueness. Um, I've I haven't and I haven't watched that many of his films. I'd like to watch more. I've only watched um, this one, The French Dispatch. Um, the Grand Budapest Hotel, and I think I watched Moonrise Kingdom as well. Um, none of them have left that much of an had much of an impact on me. Um, oh, and I watched the Fantastic Mr. Fox when I was a kid as well. But I don't know. Is is a yeah? So I've got the, my feelings on Wes Anderson are very very mixed. Is is the only thing I can say. And I, I would just describe this recent film as kind of okay. You know, it's, it's a it was very it was quite engaging it felt like an experience but i don't know i don't have much more to say on it than that really i think red letter media compared wes anderson films to woody allen movies like woody allen's always making movies and uh you know that they're always going to be good but sort of nothing special i think that's how they put it so you can say that about woody allen films and wes anderson movies they're always coming out they'll always be good but you know, you get once you've seen one, you've seen them all almost. I haven't watched any Woody Allen movies myself, though. Um, that's another filmmaker I need to check out. Um, I've got another. Uh, art, now that I think of it, I've got an article that I wrote about the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I wrote it about the similar a similar time that I wrote um, wrote my review of Modern Times. So I'll I'll read that out now because um, that's you know I'd, I'd kind of like to incorporate my old articles into my podcast but it's very short so I, I promise it won't be long but this is my review of or my some comments on the grand budapest hotel that i made uh in 2018 spoilers ahead by the way just skip ahead if you don't any spoilers for this movie i have just watched for the first time the 2014 wes anderson film the grand budapest hotel while i didn't find it terribly funny and wouldn't call it my favorite film of all time there was an element of it which I found particularly beautiful. The plot of the film, a story within a story within a story, is a girl reading a book about an author's experiences listening to the tale of an old hotel owner. This hotel owner, Mr. Zero Mustafa, 
regales the author about an adventure he had as a young man with the hotel's former eccentric concierge, Monsieur Gustave, played by Ray Fiennes. At first, he only briefly mentions that he first met his wife-to-be around the same time as this adventure, but immediately dismisses it. But we won't talk about her, as he puts it. And we generally don't see much of the girl for the rest of the tale, it being based mostly around the wacky and wonderful Gustave. How could it not be? However, after Mustafa has finished his story, the author asks him if the reason he still owns the, by this point, economically unprofitable Grand Budapest Hotel is because it reminds him of Gustave's world. Mustafa surprisingly dismisses this and reveals that the reason he still owns the hotel is that it was where he first met and had many happy times with his late wife. This is a shocking revelation. It turns the entire film on its head. For the prior hour and a half, we had been led to believe that Gustave was the most important character in the film, but this throwaway line by Mr. Mustafa subtly revealed, to me at least, that we had been hearing the wrong story all along. Mustafa probably only told the author about Gustave, because that was the story he thought he would want to hear, and he was probably right. Gustave was such an interesting, bombastic character. But it was not the story we needed to hear. It was not the most important story. It was not the real story of Mr. Mustafa's life. All along we had been seeing Mustafa's life from a particular angle, the wrong one, and our hearts pang that we never got to see much of Zero Mustafa's quiet, humble spouse, and now that the story is over and Mustafa has disappeared into history somewhere in 1968, we never will. I hope I'm not reading too much into this and that it is the exquisite piece of storytelling I think it is, because it truly proves that the most exciting stories aren't always the best ones and the most bombastic people are rarely the most important. That was my uh, little comment on the Grand Budapest Hotel I made back in 2018. You can find all these articles I've written on uh, www.revo.net. That's my old blog. It's not updated anymore. Um, but I wrote I wrote plenty of articles between 2017 and 2020, and 2020, um, and so they're they're all on there. Um, I have no idea as to their quality. It's probably a range of quality back then, um, and I don't have the time to go back and sort of edit them and polish them off. So you know, it is what it is. Um, it's sort of a graveyard of articles and essays. Continuing the French theme, um, I would like to mention probably my fav- possibly my favourite book, which is The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. The, now, The King in Yellow, it's an anthology, um, and I think uh, it's I think all the stories, uh, most of the stories are set in France. Um, well, I think one of them is set in New York. Um, but it's an anthology, and it was written, I think, it was where it was published around ni- 1895. You know, that very... I always imagine the 1890s as a very beautiful, decadent decade. You know, the end of the Victorian era, you know, uh, when the, the empires of Europe were at their height and before rumblings of war emerged on the horizon, you know. Um, but it was written in that era, and I really, I, I really adore it for many reasons. Um, I... I partly adore it because of its um, diversity. Um, it's not just... People will tell you it's just a straight horror book. It's a book of horror stories, but it's really not. It's uh, It's got horror in there, and the horror's done really well. It's really powerful cosmic horror. Um, 
but it's also got some of the stories are just straight out like sort of art nouveau romances and other stories have a mix of horror um and romance um uh so and it's just got it's got this sort of it's it's a beautiful mix of horror romance fantasy you know it's 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 a perfect synthesis and i really i really appreciate art when it's when it's diverse like that when it's a it synthesizes it doesn't stick to one genre although genre fiction can be uh fun at times you know it's fun to it's fun to sort of uh dabble in the cliches but i really appreciate the king in yellow for sort of merging all, all these genres together in, in a sort of beautiful synthesis and i appreciate it because though it is horror it's it's horror in a very beautiful way i think i think a lot of horror can be quite ugly especially cosmic horror um i've always preferred cosmic horror when it's sort of mystical and beautiful rather than ugly and nihilistic um you know i i what i really like about cosmic horror is the numinousness of it you know the brilliant thing which cosmic horror does it sort of it's a terrifying numinousness you know it's a it's it's the awe you feel when beholding a great demon or pagan god you know um i've always been more attracted to that sort of that element uh, rather than the sort of the element which seems to appeal to most people, which is sort of the gore of it, you know, horrible tentacled beings, you know, that's not really what cosmic horror has meant to me. I would describe that more as I'd probably give that the label weird fiction, maybe weird horror, whereas cosmic horror for me is more about the numinousness of it, you know, it's it's more about you know beings like Nyarlathotep, you know, the the great glory of of a of a creature like Cthulhu, you know, um, and so, so I, I, so yeah, I, I, as I, as it's clear from, you know, my podcast so far, I'm a, I'm an, a bit of an aesthete, um, and I, 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 I really, uh, appreciate beauty and detest ugliness, um, so I've, I, 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 I often find horror can be quite ugly, especially cosmic horror, um, because as I said, most people are interested in sort of the ugly and nihilistic side of it rather than the mystical side of it, which I like. All, all the sort of adaptions of H.P. Lovecraft's work focus on sort of the ugly tentacle side more than the uh, the mystical magical side, um, which I find quite disappointing. You know, films like The Thing. The Thing is a it's a well made horror film, but it's you know it's quite ugly and gruesome. Um, and that's not the part of Lovecraft's work which really appeals to me. Um, so I appreciate, but beyond cosmic horror, it can be applied to so many horror films. So many horror films are just gross and grisly, um, and unpleasant and gory. Um, uh, and I don't know. I just I don't I don't like ugliness. I don't like that sort of thing generally. Um, when I watch horror, I'm more looking for the the mystical side more looking for sort of like ghosts and spirits you know that i'm looking more to be frightened rather than appalled rather than disgusted i feel yeah i i mean i'm not i don't think i'm going to quote another quote another article that i wrote years ago maybe i will maybe i will because it's my podcast who the hell cares um but i feel there's a difference between uh between horror and sort of terror like horror is more for the the gore and the, and the disgust it's more for the slasher movies and terror is more for the ghost stories and the, the hauntings and things it's more to and the mystical element is more to make you feel terrified and afraid i prefer obviously all most horror movies are a mix of horror and terror 
but I, I, I prefer terror to horror is what I'm trying to say. I appreciate horror that has that still manages to maintain some sort of aesthetic standards that still manages to be beautiful because it can be beautiful and scary. Um, something can be beautiful and scary and The King in Yellow really demonstrates this. It's a, such a beautiful such a beautiful book but it's also got really potent powerful horror in it as well or, or terror um so and i love the romance element as well um i think robert w chambers uh was a romance writer primarily um and i i've always been meaning to read his uh read his romance books because i think there's something really interesting about uh, a male a ma I, reading the king in yellow it's i feel it's it's romance from a male point of view i think it's i think he's always talking about you know women's dainty hands and their dainty ankles or whatever i think um it's it's and you know the curls in their hair and the blush of their cheeks you know it's from a, it's from a, very much the male gaze um and i really appreciate that because that's this is romance for, me, it, for reading it it felt like romance for men and so I'd love to read uh, just some of his pure romance books, which are just romance without the horror element, um, because I, I reckon he must be, when he puts all his effort into romance, he must be really good at it, because it, I, I was always quite enchanted by the romance stories in The King in Yellow. Um, uh, it's, it's horror for men, and I feel that's, that's kind of a, a genre that's died out in the past century, um, which is a shame, because men are ro very romantic very romantic people um and even even you know plenty of romance novels are still written by men but i feel they're still targeted at girls and girls are the ones who read them you know john green would would be an example of this um so i, I really appreciate this this romance for men basically which i think uh robert w chambers sort of uh is a great example of um so Basically, I'd really recommend The King in Yellow. It's po possibly my favourite book. Um, I, I haven't read any of his other work, John W. Chambers' other works yet. I want to read The Maker of Moons, which is another sort of compilation, and it's got Art Nouveau romance in it. It's got um, horror in it as well. Um, so I'd like to read that as well, because that seems like a similar, similar kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I made an adaption of one of the stories in... Uh, in the King in Yellow, the first story in that is called The Repairer of Reputations, and I made a, a kind of a dramatic monologue adaption of it. Um, and I, I, I love that short story. It's got such... It's it's written from the point of view of someone who is insane, so, it you know, it's got an unreliable narrator, and it's got such a strong, potent sense throughout of sort of intoxicating megalomania and beauty. I'd say that the theme of that story is sort of the Napoleon complex, you know, it's a, it's a theme of sort of intoxicating megalomania and all the the feelings that inspires. Um, and hopefully I, I captured that in my sort of, uh, in my dramatic monologue adaption. Um, I would love to adapt, ad adapt this um, as a full length film. I've had some ideas in my head about how I could adapt this and make a very surreal kind of abstract film. Um, based on re the repair of reputations. Um, I, that's something, because I still feel there's so much to explore just in that short story alone, and I, I, I think there's only so much you can do with a dramatic monologue, but I'd, I'd like to take it further and make a full-length film, and I've got several. It would, be, it would be quite different from my dramatic monologue. I think it would uh, 
yeah, there's lots of crazy directions I would like to go with that. But it's, the book is so powerful in its central theme of megalomania and the way it's written that it would just and it, the sort of zeal behind it in in the in those words. I I think it would be. It would it would it would be it would just be it would, it would just it just uh, yearns to be on the screen I think and I think I could really do that. Um, I mean I could do I could make a low budget film like that. I wouldn't even need. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got ideas basically. I've got ideas. I don't know if I'll ever get round to it, but um, I wanted to adapt another sh- uh, short story in the King and Yellow as well called the Demos- Demoiselle Dice, which is sort of a ghost slash uh time travel story um and so i'd love to i wanted to adapt that too and i've got sort of plans i wanted to adapt that as a short film um with my own sort of edits to the story Um, and i've so i've got some notes on that as well so my point is like this is only one tiny little compendium of short stories and poetry um that I read in 2019 and it still had such a it's had such a big effect on me and it's just fills me with ideas um I would I would love to uh yeah it's just a huge recommend possibly my my favorite book yeah and uh most of most I think most of the book is set in France I think Robert W Chambers lived uh lived in uh lived in Paris he studied art in Paris and it's Reading it makes you want to go to Paris in the in the eighteen nineties. You know, it must have been such a rich, beautiful, rich, beautiful place. Um, it also makes you want to be a painter as well and sort of paint beautiful women. I'd you know, I think I might become a photographer so I can, because I, I don't think I have much skill as a painter, but I feel the photographer is the closest I could I could come to being a painter. You know, and I love to sort of paint beautiful women. There's a very unique relationship between a between a painter or a photographer and his female muse i think i think the story the yellow sign in in the king in yellow really uh, really demonstrates that anyway um i'm getting carried away with myself there in sort of romantic fantasy um oh i mentioned the uh the uh, the difference between horror and terror i might as well quote that article as well this is something I think I'll do now. I'll um. I'll I'll quote I'll quote freely quote my writings in my podcast because there's nowhere else. I want to make audio adaptions, but um, I obviously just don't have the time to make separate adaptions. So I'll incorporate them into the podcast, and they can just be another element, uh, another element of this already quite jumbled podcast series I'm creating. So this is a article that um i i wrote in 2018 um which is precisely on on this difference uh, the difference between horror and terror um so I've, i i again i haven't re- i haven't read this for years so i don't know if it's uh, don't know how much of it i'll agree with but i'll just i'll just read it now and uh and uh you know and maybe i'll comment on it at the end but here here it is anyway hellraiser and horror versus terror on thursday i watched hellraiser for the first time a 1987 horror film directed by clive barker and based on barker's book the hellbound heart it is about a murderous resurrected zombie trying to escape the kenobites cenobites i've never known how to pronounce that cenobites i think 
sadomasochistic demons from a hellish dimension, and it is honestly one of the most horrific films I have ever seen. Don't get me wrong, growing up in this generation I'm rather desensitised to horror, and I wasn't puking on the floor or anything close to it, but it was a bit grim, wasn't it? And because of that, I'm not sure I like it. It went a bit too far for me. Maybe it's just because I have an inherent distaste for sadomasochism, especially to the degree that is it is depicted by the Cenobites in, in the film. I just think there's something deeply unnatural about it. Pain is supposed to be unpleasurable. That's its entire purpose. Conversely, I didn't find Hellraiser particularly scary. I counted about two good jump scares, the latter of which was the only Jesus jump scare that I've ever encountered. Hellraiser horrified me, but it did not scare me, and there is a difference. I sometimes wonder if horror really is one genre at all. Some horror seems to want to horrify, like Hellraiser, to invoke invoke feelings of disgust, but some horror wants to terrify, to invoke fear, which is not necessarily the same thing. One can be disgusted at something, like bloody gore, while not being frightened of it, and one can be fearful of something, like a ghost, without necessarily being disgusted by it. For example, while Hellraiser horrifies rather than terrifies, for me at least, I'm sure it terrified plenty of people in the 80s, Whistle and I'll Come to You, uh, the 2010 BBC adaption of an M.R. James story, terrifies more than it horrifies. It doesn't really have anything disgusting in it, but it is very scary. Therefore, I would call Hellraiser a horror, and Whistle and I'll Come to You a terror. They're two different genres. However, it's rarely so easy to divide horrors from terrors, as the emotions of horror and terror are so often interlinked, and those who go into a cinema or turn on the television or open a book to get a horror-based thrill are often the sort of people who would be quite happy getting a terror-based thrill as well, or vice versa. This is why horror as a genre is usually both horrifying and terrifying. One of my favourite films of all time, Ring, from the Ring, or Ringu, the 1998 Japanese horror, is an example of this. Though it mostly leans towards the terrifying, it has certain horrific moments, such as the scene in the muddy black well. I have not watched the 2002 American adaption of this and do not plan to. Part of what makes Ring so creepy is the fact that it's foreign and Japanese. Eastern culture is so distant and alien. And the Japanese have always been naturally brilliant at horror. I don't need an American adaption, I'm not too dumb to read subtitles, and neither are you. I think it's important to note that it is easier to horrify someone than it is to terrify them. Terror seems to get dated more easily than horror. I've been reading Dracula lately, and although it has some artfully accomplished horror in it, it does not scare me, and I must say that frankly I found the book terribly boring, perhaps in part due to how cliched the tropes it popularised have since become in the last 121 years, although that alone can't take all the blame. Likewise, while A Nightmare on Elm Street, a film I also watched for the first time this week, has some brilliant horror moments, it also did not scare me. The horror stands up to this day, but not the terror. Uh, incidentally, I'm not well acquainted with slasher movies. Psycho and A Nightmare on Elm Street are the only ones I can presently name that I have yet watched. I generally find ghost stories more scary, as malevolent spirits can be anywhere, anywhen, and can do anything. They're unpredictable and hidden, and that's what makes them so terrifying. I also find them frightening because I think they're real, but that's a story for another time. Anyway, 
While many pieces of horror, like those in the aforementioned Dracula, take real artistry and skill, it is nonetheless true that any old hack can horrify someone just by including a bit of grisly gore. But terror is a different matter altogether. It always takes a real artist to suspend the disbelief effectively enough in order to make someone terrified of an obvious piece of fiction. Think about that next time you're scared by, say, a book with the author's own name on the front cover. The illusion is staring you in the face, yet you fear regardless. It really is an art. P.S. Hellraiser is living proof that the rating system needs to exist. Don't show this film to your kids at any cost. I'm not really sure I'd advise showing it to adults. So that was my uh, little review of Hellraiser. Um, I saw the... Uh, there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter recently about awful, twee, British advertisements. Um, I think I might make a compilation on YouTube at some point. Um, I haven't done it so far because uh, my computer just cannot really can't really handle editing software. I really need a new one. Um, but it's, it's become such a, such an epidemic. I can't, I can't, I can't even watch the adverts in a cinema anymore. I just have to go on my phone before the film starts because it's just, I find them so insufferable. It's always got those beige hues. I remember I was, I was referring to earlier, um, this sort of beige oranges, um, and it's 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 always got a sort of a, a multicultural, an unrealistically multicultural cast, um, uh, and it's always got such sort of it's got either got sort of bad sentimental poetry or otherwise it's just really twee and kitsch and sentimental and soppy and uh, kind of makes your skin crawl. Um, I think more and more people are starting to cotton onto this and how ugly adverts have become recently and how much of a how much of psychological torment they inflict upon us um i i i really just i really just i i find it as i say i've got a very strong aesthetic sense and i really suffer being subjected to them and i do as i mentioned in the previous podcast i think i i don't know why we there aren't sort of aesthetic restrictions on advertisements i think we should go full taliban on adverts and just make them very plain uh, make sure they're quite aesthetically pleasing to look at and just make them little more than sort of s- statements about a product that exists and l- let that be that you know I think they've especially in this age of new media and the internet we just cannot ad- ads are destroying our psyche they're destroying our civilization you know our psychology our mental health um, and uh, you know you, c- you can't tell the difference between what is an ad and what isn't these days you know it's become real psychological terrorism uh that's that's the horrid thing about it i prefer ads there has to be have to be restrictions on adverts on advertisements um i firmly believe in that um but there's the awful one that came out uh awful one came out uh today this audi advert for christmas um and as I've I've said many times, I I think holidays without religion, um, are just just become capitalism. I didn't feel like participating in Halloween this year, which I will I I, I defend Halloween somewhat because people say it's just an Americanism, but it did originate in the British Isles first, and then it was exported to America, and then it was exported back to Britain. But I didn't feel like celebrating it this this year because it's just a 
felt too too corporate and just too capitalistic and tacky. Uh, I feel Halloween without a real sort of folkish belief in spirits like the old the Scots and the Irish used to have is just capitalism. It's just uh, debauched parties. Um, and Christmas without Christ is just just capitalism, just consumerism. There's holidays. I mean, they're, they're holidays. They're holy days. That's the meaning of the word. Holidays without religion are just vapid things. Um, so anyway, it's this, this, this advert for Audi. Um, uh, this Audi Christmas advert. Um, and it's, you know, really twee and awful. And it's Dickensian. And it's got a load of fruits and vegetables playing out the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, basically. Um, and then sort of bad sentimental poetry again. Um, and, uh, of course, St. Marcus Rashford, or Marcus Radishford, as he is referred to in the, in the advert, makes an appearance. And they say, oh, Marcus Rad- Radishford, he's always helping children. And I just, uh I'm just living in hell, aren't I? You know, I've, I've died and I've gone to hell, but I haven't realised it yet. <laughs> the thing about... I, I don't want to dwell on this, um, because, frankly, British... British politics has got to the point where it just it's so mundane, it makes it almost difficult to even talk about it. This is the most mundane most mundane dictatorship in human history. But um basically Marcus Rashford, his whole free school meals campaign, from the outset, it was obvious it was directed by a marketing team. And it was obvious and we could name uh, we could name the specific people behind it, and it was this. I think it was this woman who was behind a lot of celebrity marketing campaigns, which all used charity to try and. Uh, it's really evil when you think about it. That this 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 marketing person was using charity, uh, charity efforts to big up celebrities, basically to promote celebrities, and she did the same thing with Marcus Rashford and journalists. They're either they're either so stupid that they didn't see this. Or they didn't want to see this, um, and it just, so it, 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 it so everyone took his free school meals campaign seriously, even though it was just a marketing campaign and it was all fake and fraudulent. Um, and ever ever since then, Marcus Rashford has just been idolised. You know, he's become venerated as a kind of British saint to replace Captain Tom. Um, and I just find it so insufferable because it's obvious it's it's a marketing team pulling the strings, really. It, I mean, it was particularly obvious recently uh, when one of his marketing, one of his PR people tweeted from accidentally from their own accounts, a tweet that they later went and put on his account. So it's, all his tweets are fake. They're all they're all, uh, all they're all in this really chummy sort of laddish tone, but. They're all fake. No, he doesn't actually tweet any of them. Um, it's 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 just so fake, and it's obviously fake. Um, and it's just kind of insufferable that people can't see that. Um, and it's just because journal- journalists are either really gullible, or they don't they don't care because they want to promote him. Um, it's probably a mix of of the two. Um, I've been over before in sort of previous streams and podcasts the uh, how the sort of r- the racial abuse he received was hyped up by the media into a moral panic when really it was only like a handful of foreign accounts um uh, and yeah um I've, I've been over that before 
but yeah, just the the fact that he appears in this advert and they say, oh, Marcus Radishford, he's always helping children. Like, what does it say about some Marcus Rashford's ego that he agrees to appear in these adverts, that in these self-glorifying advertisements? Take heed that ye do not your arms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 6, 1. I feel we've really... The modern world has really forgotten that. Charity is worth nothing if you're doing it just for your own your own promotion, you know. I feel we spend so much time talking about third world immigration to Europe or Hispanic immigration to the United States. But I feel we don't we often look over the fact that of of, of Asian immigration to Canada. I mean, the Asian population in Canada is almost 20% of the population, which is crazy thinking that Canada, unlike the United States, which, you know, at least has always had that division between white and black, Canada has been mostly a homogenous country, except for a few Inuit in the north um, and a few, uh, few First Nations people. It's been mostly majority white, mostly quite homogenous. Um, so that's that's really astonishing that it's almost twenty percent East Asian, um, and you know I've when I think this has been happening for a while. I think when uh, uh, when some family members went to Canada in the eighties, they just said it was full of Chinese people. Um, and I had a friend in Canada a while back who tried renting out a apartment, and he was he couldn't do so because uh, the, the the Chinese landlord was just renting it out to Asians only. So, um, I yeah, I don't, it's just not discussed as much. I don't. Th- I feel similar things are happening in Australia and New Zealand as well. These countries are also getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Asian immigration. Um, and this is I. This is this has made me contemplate. I I don't. I I I hate. I don't think. Canadians or Australians or New Zealanders have a very keen sense of their, or, or Americans for that matter, white Anglo-Saxon Americans have a very keen conception of their identity, of their ethnic identity, and they just feel that they're generic white people living in a land that's not theirs. I feel all Anglos suffer from this. We don't have a very keen self-conception of our identity. Um... And I feel that's a great problem because we do have an identity, uh, and everyone else in the every everyone else in the world knows who Le, Le Anglo-Saxons, as the French the French call us. Everyone knows who the Anglo-Saxons are. Everyone knows who the Anglo's are. You know, the eternal Anglo. But we don't we don't have we don't feel that sense of belonging in ourselves. You know, and I feel that's a real problem and something we have to put right if we are just gonna if we are gonna survive as a sub subsection of the human race. Um, as an ethnic people, um, I feel there is a, and so much of my writings are about this, trying to remind Anglo's about their sort of shared Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Celtic heritage and how it has informed their culture. Whether you're a Anglo-American or a Canadian or an Anglo-African, Australian or New Zealander, I. The, I've I've written about how uh our, 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 how or a British person I've I've tried to stress um how our shared uh, Anglo-Saxon 
Germanic roots shape us as a people. And I'm not, I don't, I don't mean that in a racial sense at all. I feel some sort of pseudo historian sort of commented, lambasted my articles or because he thought I was meant it in a racial sense. I don't mean it in a Ku Klux Klan sense at all. I mean it in a cultural sense, as the French do when they refer to the Ang- Anglo-Saxons. Um, I mean, we've got a... I mean, so much of our, our conception of... Indiv- so much of our individualism and conception of freedom comes down to our Germanic Anglo-Saxon roots. Um, and you, you, we saw this recently. There was uh, a poll... Um, and it it was asking people in Europe, um, would you, uh, how likely are you to comply with COVID nineteen measures? And overwhelmingly, people in uh, northern European Germanic countries, Scandinavia, Great Britain, we were the most, we were the least likely to comply, basically, in this poll. And so there, there there's your finest evidence of it um, that we are, you know, there's this this shared Germanic sense of individual liberty which comes from the fact that in the in northern Europe, when it was first settled uh, by the Germanic people, it was a very hostile environment that naturally lent itself to sort of individuals and individual warriors and their families, and that's where our sense of freedom has come from. But there are many other unique features of the Anglo-Saxon peoples or Anglo-Celtic peoples, um, which, uh, you know, which define us. Though we do have a clear ethnic identity, um, which distinguishes us from, I don't know, America is always a good example because America was a mostly homogenous Anglo-Saxon nation before the great before the arrival of what BAP calls the Ellis Island fraternity in the early in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, who have never truly assimilated and have quite and have really kind of ruined American identity and sort of divested it from its roots and shared from stopped America from prevented America from developing this shared ethno-cultural nationhood. Um, it's really the Ellis Island fraternity really fucked that up for America, really. Um, but before that, um, America was a very Anglo-Saxon nation, and there was when the British Empire was still the dominant power in the world, there was, it was the dream of many British people that America, the United States would sometime rejoin their Anglo-Saxon brethren in the, in the United British Al- em- Empire, you know. Um unfortunately that never came to pass um but i feel there's even to this day in america there's a clear difference between what the people that are called wasps you know white anglo-saxon protestants the original uh americans in the sense the original people of the united states people like george washington um and thomas jefferson the brits who founded america basically the rebellious britons who founded america the the wasps they these these are the original uh the original Americans, as it were, and there's a real difference between them and German Americans, Norwegian Americans, uh, Jewish Americans, Polish Americans, Italian Americans, all these groups that came later. Um, I don't; these people have never fully assimilated into America, and um, they still think think of themselves as distinct groups. And the trouble for um, Anglo's is that we 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 need we don't we don't feel that identity among ourselves, but we really should because we are our own people and we are our own ethnic group. Um, otherwise, we we will just get taken advantage of by every every other group that we allow into into our lands. Um, so I I have very so I feel like Canadians, you know, Canadians, Australians, uh, New Zealanders. 
these they they feel like they have they're just random white people that ended up in their lands and they've got no right to it. But I I really want to stress if there's one thing I can accomplish with my sort of writings and my my words and my podcast is I really want to stress this Anglo-Saxon identity. Um, and again, I'm not so much talking. I'm never. I'm not a racialist person. I'm not. Um, you know, I, I never. I never. I'm never stressing when I use words like Anglo-Saxon or Germanic. I'm not stressing anything, any racial superiority or anything. I'm talking about a culture, as a cultural group. Um, I wish. Uh, I wish Canadians and Anglo-Africans and New Zealanders, Australians, and uh, wasps in America. I wish they would, you know, realize that they do have an identity, that they are a people with a shared history, um, and that they do have a claim to their lands, and they are different from these Italian Americans, these Polish Americans, whatever, that are taking advantage of them. Um, so, or the, or, so, I feel that if, so if it's a big deal, basically, is what I'm trying to say. When Canada opens its borders to massive. Asian immigration. It's not a, a East Asians, Chinese people do not have the same claim to Canada that Anglo Canadians do. Okay, um, there's the Anglo Canadians have been there for hundreds of years. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm really trying to stress that, and as as best I can, you know, it was it was it was it's just it's just it was it was Anglo Canadians and French Canadians uh, who built Canada. Um, it was. Anglo-Americans who built the United States. It was uh, what they call Anglo-Celtic Australians, you know, Australians of British descent, who built Australia, and it, it was Anglo-New Zealanders who built New Zealand, and it, to some extent it was Anglo-Africans who built South Africa and uh, Rhodesia as well, but of course there was also the Africana influence there too. So that's why I find it so egregious when, you know, Australians talk about renaming their cities to their aboriginal names it was not the aboriginals you know i've got great respect for the aboriginal people um but I, it was not the aboriginals who built built these cities it was the british who built these cities australia is a british is a britannic nation it's a it's a part of anglo civilization our great anglo civilization and we should be proud of that um it's it's australia these cities were built by anglo celtic australians they were built by britons um, and I, Australians should be proud of that. Um, I, I, so that that that's what I'm really trying to stress is is our idea. We will cease to exist if we do not have a strong self. All peoples who do not have a strong self conception of their identity will cease to exist. Um, and I feel, feel that would be a great shame because I feel there's a great uniqueness to uh, to Anglo culture. I, 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 it's it's the reason that. You know, King's College, Cambridge has had like I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's something like ten times more, more, more Nobel Prize winners than the whole of France. There is some, there's a, is a unique ingenuity to Anglo civilization which is rooted in our individualism. I have foreseen a world in which the Anglo Americans, the white Anglo Americans, uh, unite with the Native Americans. Um, and also with the African-Americans. And when I mean refer to African-Americans, I mean specifically the descendants of uh, the slaves who have lived in uh, North America for hundreds of years and who, who did cop, who did along, you know, who, who have, who do have a right to be there. Um, 
and you know have have built a culture in America alongside um, alongside Anglo Americans. Um, so I, I I foresee a future where Anglo Americans, uh, the WASPs, you know, uh, Native Americans and African Americans, by which I specifically mean the descendants of slaves and not uh, you know new random new immigrants from like Nigeria or, or whatever or people like Barack Obama who's like half Kenyan you know what I mean they're they're completely different kettle of fish I've seen I've seen a world in which these groups these are the, these true these are the true Americans these are the only peoples with any right to really call themselves American um these these three peoples I've foreseen a world in which they drive out the Ellis Island fraternity which has been taking advantage of them for so long um Jewish landlords in black neighborhoods, you know, re- re- renting out, renting out neighborhoods with extortionate rent, you know, um, the Israel lobby, you know, Italian Americans causing like mafia crime on on the streets of of you know New York and New Jersey, you know. We, I, I do not. These these people have never fully assimilated into America, into the United, into into the American nation. The only, the only true, the only Americans worthy of the name are Anglo-Americans who actually built, you know, conceptualized and built the United States. The African Americans who, you know, I have a great respect for, who's, you know, uh, they're 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 very close. I feel I feel African Americans and Anglo-Americans are more closely related than they would either of them would like to admit, because obviously they do share a lot of their blood. I, all African Americans, all who are descended from slaves, have some white ancestry, and their culture is obviously derived from Southern U.S. culture. They've got much, of course. There's bad blood between, you know, the Wasps and African Americans, but I feel they've got more cult, more similarity than they would like to admit. And they are, they, I feel they are like the ancient, like or like an ancient in the ancient Greek nation. Um, in ancient Greece, there was uh, there were there were different tribes of the Greeks, but and they may have had their differences, and they may may have gone to war, but they they ultimately realized they were part of some shared Greek nationality. I feel that's the case between the wasps and the African Americans, the slave descendants. Um, I feel I the, the, you have the 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 wasps who who conceptualized America, who founded the United States. You have the African Americans, of course, who slave na- labor. Uh, went into constructing. I think oh, it's a myth that African Americans, you know, America was built on the back of slaves. I, that only really applies to the South, which was mainly agrarian. The Industrial Revolution happened in in the North, where there wasn't slavery. But you know, African Americans have suffered throughout American history, um, and they are they have a right to be there. Is, is what I'm trying to articulate. Basically, is my point. Um, and I, I I feel there should be some kind of a there will come some kind of reconciliation between the Anglo-Americans and the African-Americans, and there may, 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 some kind of reconciliation will come there. I feel. Um, but then also, the, then then there's the Native Americans, who, of course, they were there first. They were defeated. I, you know, and most of them died from disease that the Europeans brought over. We can get into that later. But these are the only three groups I'm th- willing to recognize. As having any right to the title of American, um, and they, they together they will unite and they will push out this Ellis Island fraternity, which has taken advantage of them for the last one hundred years. Um, same in Canada, really. The, the, the only Canadians that count Anglo 
are Anglo-Canadians and French Canadians. And in Australia, Australia was built by British people, was built by Anglo-Celtic Australians. And, you know, we can debate uh, how the Aborigines were treated, but the fact of the matter is the Aborigines are at their pre... the levels, the population levels they were at before colonisation. They wouldn't have been much better off if they were still um, living in their sort of Stone Age tribal existence. I mean, we can debate that, but I foresee a time when Australia is restored to its sort of its its Britannic culture to its the Anglo-Celtic its Anglo-Celtic Britannic culture, and the Aborigines are, are given a fair deal. And the, the you know there's some there's some reconciliation there too between the Anglo-Celtic Australians and the Aborigines. And these are the only two peoples who have any right to Australia, I believe. Same in New Zealand between Anglo-Celtic New Zealanders and the Maori. Um, Perhaps there could be some kind of reconciliation between Anglo-Africans and Afrikaners um, in South Africa, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to go down in South Africa. Afrikaners are still pretty bitter about the the Boer Wars, and so they're not too they're not very keen on Anglo's. But anyway, this is my point. I'm trying to emphasise that Anglo's are a shared people. We are we are we are a single we are we we are one civilization anglo civilization is one ultimately despite our political differences uh i feel we really do need to reemphasize an anglo identity and i feel we're beginning to see the first glimmers of a sort of pan anglo feeling um on the internet in sort of like eternal anglo memes you know um i feel a lot of americans are trying that i've met on sort of twitter and whatnot are trying to sort of a lot of anglo americans are trying to reconnect with their roots in in Britain, in their British ancestry, um, I feel, I feel, I feel they sometimes do this in LARPy ways. Like they, LARP is kind of like monarchists and things. Um, it's like high Tories or whatever. I feel it'd be much more practical if they tried to emulate sort of H.P. Lovecraft and sort of embrace their like Ameri- truly American roots. You know, embrace old-fashioned America, Americana. You know, like Johnny Appleseed or whatever. Um, while maintaining a kind of anglophilia for the for the motherland for the for the british motherland you know this is what we need to inculcate we need to inculcate this anglo identity and i hope that in a future britain we'll have some kind of like anglo alia policy in place so that uh people of primarily british descent overseas british colonial descent can have a right to return to the anglo motherland and that way we can really boost up our population in a way that won't cause massive cultural uh, cultural um, warfare as multiculturalism is doing today. I think it might be time to read some tweets out um, before I finish. Um, uh, today, uh, Ash Ash Zakar has been um, has has been peddling out this this common sort of left wing myth in Britain that. Uh, Remembrance Day is for celebrating the world wars, which it just plainly isn't, and no one has ever conceived of it like that. I don't know where this myth comes from, um, but she's been coming out with like she literally Ashokar today has basically came out with the take that wow the world wars were bad. Wow, who would have thought? What an edgy take. British leftism is so boring and stale. They think they're edgy for touting opinions that would have been edgy about a hundred years ago. Voice of the youth. Owen Jones, who is now approaching 40 years of age, 
released a book in 2014 about how Britain is still ruled by a socially conservative establishment of old Church of England capitalists. These people are stuck in the early 20th century, even Peter Hitchens is ahead of them. Rap music is tired and stale. It's been the dominant popular music genre for 20 years. When will anyone get bored of it? Could it be we've run out of ideas? I personally think the 100-year dominance of American or African-American music should come to an end. The next wave of popular music should come out of the Chinese folk music tradition, or be inspired by the beats of Australian Aboriginal tribal dance. There are probably musical innovations in some parts of the world totally unknown to Westerners. Western music doesn't even use all the notes that can be heard by the human ear. I really don't understand modern rap. At least old-school hip-hop had some lyricism. Now it's just mumbling inane bullshit. Most of the time people just enjoy the accompanying music or beats. Though it was made by studio musicians, the rapper somehow gets all the credit and adoration. The modern rapper is the pop star in its purest form, pure idol. He doesn't create the music himself, the lyrics are just inane mumbling anyone could drunkenly slur. The modern rapper's role is solely to be an object of adoration, a Dionysian cult figure, the raps themselves are mere ritual chants, serving the end of eliciting this adoration. Those are my thoughts on uh, modern rap music, in the wake of um, the horrible uh, Travis Scott disaster. Some more of my tweets. I'm starting to suspect film festivals are generally a con, a vanity project and an outdated means of promoting short films. I probably won't submit The Dark Age to many more. We are in almost exactly the same position as we were in the early 20th century. Instead of crusty, incompetent old Victorians, we have Brit poppers and baby boomers, unequipped to deal with the new century. I hate a Britishness defined solely by outdated 20th century cliches and stereotypes. This is an interesting thread I wrote. I'm not. I'm generally not actually that good at Twitter, um, but this is. I don't actually. I don't actually make very interesting threads like like most people seem to do. But this is actually an, an odd instance of a thread which I was actually quite proud of. So I'll, I'll read it out now. The most interesting times in history are always the fringes, the spaces between major historical events that aren't... By the way, I'm sorry about uh, the sound of, of the fan in the background, that's my computer, asthmatically stuttering and spluttering because it can't, can't handle even me browsing Twitter while, while doing something else, so apologies for that. But anyway, this is, this is the thread. The most interesting times in history are always the fringes, the spaces between major historical events that aren't taught in history classes, that people just forget about. I'd love to travel back in time to 1913 or the late 1940s and just hang out. And I, I, I attached to this a picture of... Uh, a picture from 1948, and it's quite a strange picture because it's, it's sort of this... this this, you know, it's 1948, it's just after the Second World War, but it's, it's a child watching a television, um, and in the background there's this very mundane kind of post-war car park, so it's like the, the meeting of, of the pre, of the, you know, the pre-war old-fashioned world, and, and the post, the mundane sort of bland post, post-war world, you know, it's quite a fascinating image. I wrote, look at that mundane car park in the background, especially for Britain. I don't know if the picture is British or American. The, peri the period immediately after the Second World War 
was the modern world as we know it in embryo, emerging from the immediate ashes of the olden days. Another example, the 1953 British comedy film Genevieve. Most of it is so charmingly old-fashioned, with the vintage cars and unspoiled English countryside, it could have been made in the 1930s, but you notice the new tarmac roads and one brutalist-esque building in the background. It's so often easy to imagine modernity as a distinct clear break from the past, a new world detached from the old, whereas really it was more of a process. Somewhere in the Victorian mind there was some vague dream of tower blocks and rock and roll yet to take shape. For example, would you guess that the boy on the pedestal... So I've attached some more, two more pictures here. Apologies, this hasn't really translated to podcasts very well. But it's a picture of a little Victorian child on one hand and then a very modern building from the 1960s on the other. Imagine the most garish... Uh, garish uh, modern architecture that you can imagine from the 60s. Um, but would you would you guess that the boy on the pedestal on the left, on the picture on the left, would go on to design the building on the right? Le Corbusier? I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, and it looks like we've got another mention for France in this podcast. This podcast seems to have a, a somewhat French theme. Um, but Le Corbusier, who invented modern architecture, spent the first 14 years of his life in the Victorian era. Past and present are more interconnected than we think. It begs the question, what are we dreaming of? The world 50 or 60 years from now will look very different compared to today. Just like Le Corbusier in the Victorian era, we haven't even begun to see what young people are capable of. The future is already here, hidden. And I, I continue to remark more on this curious fact that this garish building, which I showed a picture of this garish 60s modern architecture was designed by a man who spent the first 14 years of his life in the Victorian era by this this Victorian child which I also showed a picture of you know it's such a stark contrast um so I continue to comment on this on uh, on Le Corbusier come to think of it this is really embarrassing the building on the left was designed by a Victorian in the 1960s yet we are still building things just like it to this day Stop calling it modern art and architecture. It's deeply old-fashioned and stagnant. Our politics continues to be defined by a woman born in 1925. I'm of course referring to Margaret Thatcher. But our architecture is defined by someone born in 1887, Le Corbusier. Contemporary art and architecture is quintessentially 20th century, intrinsically defined by generations scarred by the world wars. Ugly and outdated, it should be remembered as little more than historical fancy, a brief bout of bad taste when our civilization was at its lowest ebb. I feel this podcast has gone on long enough. I just wanted to finish on some more, um, some, you know, quoting from Twitter as I, I usually do. Because it's, it's nice to, you know, make an audio adaption of, of the things I say, because otherwise it's just, I just delete it later. So anyway, I've hope, I hope it's been enjoyable. It has been a very long podcast, um, so I apologise for its length. I think in future, if I start incorporating sort of like narrating my articles or, and my my stories into into my podcasts, then I can maybe make one every week. And I still want to make maybe more interview podcasts as, as well. So hopefully I can make release a podcast every week and then uh, I, it won't get to a point where I 
release it every three weeks and then when I do release it it's like two hours or three hours long you know um so it would be much better I think to have shorter podcasts but just one every week um but I have enjoyed speaking nonetheless um and hopefully I haven't bored you um it's just it's I, I feel the best way to listen to these like long form podcasts is just the same way I do you know listen to it on your phone and when you're walking to the bus stop or something and listen to it a bit at a time because I'm just rambling on you know but hopefully there's something in here which is of of value but anyway check out my bio link my Substack, uh my old blog if you want to see some old writings of mine which I've quoted in this in this podcast um and so yeah follow me on twitter instagram blah 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 uh remember wisdom sides with love and uh I'm Revo, a.k.a. Dominic Krennis, and it was a delight to speak to you all. Uh, Goodbye.